0: Everybody likes you, everybody hates you, you're gonna lose.
1: Maybe now is just a nice moment, because I've, I've received like questions or comments. It has been noted, as per your, um, which has been receiving very, very good feedback, your Superman pitch. Um, it's been noted that your film has the same title as James Gunn, and we didn't touch on that at the time. And I don't know, is that a coincidence, or did you like the title? How did Total Superman Legacy come Chaps. to be?
0: Total coincidence. Yeah, it it was it was gonna be Superman Colon Sons of Krypton with the two boys, you know, um buying um but yeah I I had no idea what Gunn was going for. There you go. How about that? There
1: you are. I loved that, very nice. (laughs) By the way, my other title, because mine was just Superman, but if that's too boring, I will take this opportunity to say Superman Colon, the rise of ultra humanite was my was my nice. other, here was my full title. So there you go. <laughs> um, yeah, and, I, and Gary Sinise, I mentioned in the pod, if anyone's interested, he was going to play Abner Sedgwick, who becomes Ultra-Humanite. Um, that, that was one of my my casts, but I didn't want to go too much into it. And I thought maybe Stanley Tucci is Perry White. But oh, again, I, I kind of... But I, I'm glad I didn't mention that at the time, because I kind of wanted people to sort of picture who they want. You know. um, so that's nice. In the meantime, Jimmy, shall we jump in
0: to this Can I say one thing to you before we do? I've got one other silly little order of business. I have not remembered my Kirby enthusiasm super duper situation, but I did have a Kirby situation the other day that I thought was of note and worthy of bringing to the pod. And it's as simple as this, or I say simple, as I was nodding off last night, I thought, yeah, I'm going to share this with Shepi tomorrow. And then, as I did, I thought of about four different permutations of ways you could go. So let me give you, like, the situation, (laughs) what other way you could cut it, right? So I'm on the airplane, uh, like, two weeks ago, and I'm sat there, and I'm on the aisle seat. There's a lady next to me and then someone at the window. And coming up the aisle is another lady and um, and they and then someone gets stuck further up the, like, the aisle. And so they, they get chatting. Turns out they know each other. They're buddies. You know, they're having a little bit of a giggle. And then the one that's been talking to her comes and sits behind me in the seat directly behind me. And being the magnanimous chap that I am sometimes ships, so I stop listening to my pod and I just say to them do you want me to just switch switch seats? You know, it wasn't that they were being annoying. I think it was just the kindness yeah. of the heart. Like, yeah. I don't care where I sit. You can come and sit here and then you can have a hoot. And by the way, hoot they did have. Like they were laughing all the way through the flight and everything. So I feel like I really gave a gesture back to the world. But as I switch seats, I go into the lady who sat down second seat. And I'm directly behind where I was. There is a gap. And then there's someone on the window. And then, of course, your mind immediately turns to Larry style. You've just done something really nice like that. And then yeah. what if the next passenger down the way is just the most annoying character ever? Yes. <clears throat> yeah. And I just, it just made me so happy. And then I was just thinking like, oh, God, there's so much mileage around trying to get your old seat back. And like, oh, it'd like, <laughs> oh, be so good. Yeah. I then,
1: made a shape. I made a space. I was sitting on
0: the <laughs> a <laughs> and then or, or or something wrong with the seatbelt that was always annoying for him but the episode but then more importantly I wondered if there's one where basically um you know uh Sue it's Sue's and Jeff in the seats in front or something and uh and, and but instead of that whole situation I just gave you I was thinking like it's just it's a posher plane because they're richer and um and it's 2-2 two, two. And you got Susan Jeff in front, and Larry on the window, and then behind Susan Jeff, and um, and but like Susan doesn't have the window seat; she wants the window seat. She's arguing with Larry, and then it's the whole thing around if the plane goes down. I want them to identify me from the seat and from the window, and they argue <laughs> over who would be more important to rescue and who should be in the. Seat. I think there's just oh, rich, rich, rich mileage on that's all that. Great. <laughs> yes, <laughs>
1: oh, that's wonderful. I like the idea of if you're if you, like, swap with the person sitting behind you, so now they sit in front of you, and then they, like, crack the seat back and don't give you any leg space ah. and spill your drink and flip their hair over Neil Page style into your food and stuff. <laughs> that, that... <laughs> and you've got a kid behind who's, like, the woman's kid kicking the back of your seat and sitting behind <laughs> you. Uh... <laughs> yeah,
0: that's... <laughs> there's, there's, a just wonderful. there's a lot. There's a lot. All just... of this,
1: all of this is wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh well, man. there you are. No, no. Um, I've I've had some. I'm not even going to mention it, but I've had some bad moments recently where I haven't conducted myself very well. Um, so you are the altar You are Magnus McManus Magnuson. <laughs> as far as I'm concerned, because I've been I've been trying to yeah be be nicer. Because yeah, like a, about a week ago I was sort of horrible, in about three. Moments in a in a row. I was like, oh, no, come on. What would Jimmy
0: do? What would Jimmy oh, do? No, 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 <laughs> no, no. no, no. <laughs> so,
1: so that's wonderful, though. Good for you. Uh, hold that thought for when you fly to Blighty uh, on your God. epic trail and see what happens next. Because that right, could be film opportunity.
0: <laughs> Great. Oh, Sheps Should I jump us in? Should I jump us in? Yes,
1: that's wonderful.
0: Hello, good evening, good morning, and welcome wow. to Shoulders oh, of Giants. I'm loving it, we very
1: sort of, a bit Ronnie Barker. <laughs> yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, I was going for Angus Deaton, I think, maybe, somewhere, residually. Oh, okay. I don't know why. But um, anyway, welcome to Shoulders of Drives. I am Jimmy.
1: Hello, I am Shelly.
0: <laughs> and uh, we are the What If Podcast for movie sequels and prequels and spin-offs and tv show extra seasons and all sorts of fun and frolics have
1: we done a tv show extra season i mean that could work i don't think it's we a have. good
0: point we did well extra series of black Heather.
1: oh that's what true else? that counts that does
0: counts. it count yeah did we do and i think I there's you. another one in the in the in the canon which was a little bit more of a Give me, oh, is that Commando? I I did that, didn't I? I chose. We did Commando, but
1: that's not an extra season. And we did uh, Cocktail, but that's not an extra season. No, you're right. So, yeah, good stuff, though. Very good stuff. Um, That's wonderful, Jimmy. Um, I'm very happy and excited today because we're doing a film. uh, Well, I'll say we're doing The Last Boy Scout which is 1991, and it's Tony Scott, and it's Bruce Willis, and it's Damon Wayne's, it's Joel Silver producing, and Shane Black writing, and it's Michael Kamen doing the music, and I mentioned that because you've got all these similarities and same group, um, other than Tony, of course, and everything, but um, the same vibe and everything. You've got your, your Silver, your Cayman, your Black, for uh, your Lethal Weapons. So I've, it's nice. It, it makes me very happy that we're we're doing all of that. Um, Jimmy, and it's something that, uh, yeah, Pete. Someone asked me when we very first started this pod that we, you know, that, were we going to do it, and I wasn't sure because it wouldn't be a direct continuation; it would just be another adventure. But we've done plenty of next adventures, so it seemed like this was the right moment. Uh, so I'm I'm very excited to be to be doing it, Jimmy. And I'm just going to say right off the bat, I love Last Boy Scout. Now, if we're—I've got this really sort of very extreme, stupid sort of definition of exact genre. Um, so, in terms of pure action film, so I'm not counting, for example, The Indiana Jones, because that's action adventure, and I'm not counting James Bond because that's James Bond and it's its own genre with <laughs> little subgenres within the run. But if we're talking just action, action, action then it's my, I think, second favourite action film after Die Hard. So you've got your double Willis as well. Um, Yeah, I think it is. Um, So there you go. And I also, perhaps controversially, it's my favourite Tony Scott film. So I'm just throwing all of that out there. Yes. What do you think about that?
0: That's a lot to catch, Sheps. I love it. I'm so pleased. Um, I think... I knew you loved it I didn't know you loved it that much that's really cool that's really cool I respect it Sheps I need I can't counter you and tell you where it sits in in the Pantheon mm. I have this is my moment to surprise you in a it yeah. comments I've done a rewatch and I have thoughts yeah. for the pod so right. I've rewatched it recently so I'm excited that's to wonderful. share some things well let
1: from, me ask you the classic but before that when was the last time you had seen it
0: um, yeah, i wish i'd waited because i was wait i was gonna wait for your wedding last time i was gonna go oh three days ago um but i just uh uh look it, it had <laughs> been a long time Shep's. it had been well, a long is. time why not let's throw, it, let's throw it in with that time when i never left the house and watched everything um yeah it, it would have been a long yeah why not maybe maybe because maybe you and i have done it more recently than that i feel like i was gonna ask you that time. but i don't
1: think we've seen it together
0: Oh wow! Um, we,
1: in Richmond, that time we came close. We were looking for it when Abby and paul were there, and you know it was that sort of experience. We went to Tesco's and were looking for it, but we couldn't find it. So we bought and watched *The Fugitive* instead. Um oh. But I don't know if you and I have ever watched this together. I, it, wow. I don't think so.
0: It's um. I remember vividly my first experience watching it, it was in like a uh, when I was at boarding school and uh, and it was on in the TV room in there and like <laughs> it was a real deal that we managed to get it and it was a real deal that we we're all underage and we were kind of like you know pausing <laughs> every two seconds in case teach walks in or whatever like do you know what I mean? <laughs> like trying to get away with watching it and uh, and and I just <laughs> remember that really really vividly and it was getting so many laughs and like you know it's just. Uh, it's a, it's a cracking script, isn't it? Really good yes. script. Yes. And that's it's what really fun. makes it sing. Yeah. Yes.
1: yeah, It's tight um, and very good. A lot of people who worked on that film didn't enjoy making it. It um, was interesting. Um, Tony Scott did. Tony Scott hated... Now, this is interesting. Tony Scott made a lot of films with um, Bruckheimer um, being the, the other major producer power player in the 80s and 90s, and Don Simpson as well. And he made this one film of Joel Silver and he did not enjoy working with Joel Silver. And the character in his next film, or I think it was his next film, True Romance, the producer is apparently strongly based on, on Joel Silver. So so that's interesting. Um, what you, know, um, I like that. And also Cayman didn't like it, um, I don't know. Uh, it's interesting, very interesting to me about that.
0: Um, in terms you, of me, Willis and Wayans yes. didn't get together. They, they didn't like working together either, did they? Willis and Wayans—that's so a shame. And because uh, it is, is so ripe, Shep, it's the per- this is one of the most perfect it. choices for a sequel for sure. It's yes. a great one. So well,
1: Willis—I mean, a lot of people—but Willis has, has history, his priors of having amazing screen chemistry with people who didn't get on with in real life, like Sybil Shepherd, for example. Um, So yes, yes, certainly. Um, It's very interesting how it all translates, but it works for me. Um,
0: When did you first see it? When uh, was your history?
1: I have memories, Jimmy, being on holiday, and it must have been 1991, and there was a poster for it in the arcade room. I think it was France, (laughs) I might be wrong, but wherever we were on holiday, there was an arcade place in the campsite. And there was a poster, or like a little, maybe it was even just like the video cover, stuck on a wall of Last Boy Scout. And I liked the smell of it. And I remember when it first came out to rent, um, I was at uh, the Brad's Spa, Londis, at the top of my road, and they had like about 17 VHSs you could rent. And I was there with my brother and his friend, and we were choosing a film but it was really like they were choosing a film, and I was allowed to watch it with them, essentially. And I said, "Hopefully, how about Last Boy Scout?" And they were like, "Nah." And we ended up watching Harley Davidson and the Man. And at the <laughs> beginning, it had a trailer for Last Boy Scout, and it was a really good trailer. And I remember sort of being like, "Me." Mm-hmm. Um, but shortly after that, I did finally get to watch it again. Like I, I rented it out, and like, as yourself in your TV room, you know, it was like. But I think I just blazed into Village Video, and they were like, "Yeah, here you go, like thirteen-year-old Sheffield or something." I'm like, "Cheers!" And I watched it with Bryant, and um, it was, and I, we really enjoyed it. And then it was on a bunch of times on you know Diet Coke, um, ITV, and it was cut to shit, um, like all the swearing, all the violence, which is you know seventy-eight percent of the film is swearing and violence. So I saw that a couple of times, but then it was when I was at university and I bought it and I watched it with definitely my friend Shep, not me, and his name was his name was Ian Singleton, but he was called Shep at University. Weird. Um but I watched it with him and he had only seen the Diet Coke um version and um he he so it blew him away. He thought it was like a sort of a PG comedy. Um, And I also remember watching it with various people at uni and it went down, like with your viewing at your school, it went down so very, very, very well and everyone was whooping it up and I felt a certain pride in that, a lot of that crowd, it was university, it was film students, it was a lot of like, no true foe, no show type thing, but they really got on board with it and any sniffiness went out the window immediately and everyone whooped it up and then we all went out afterwards. So that was great. So so I watched it then. And that's another, And I'm sure I watched it in between and all that sort of thing, but it's another noticeable moment for me when I watched it. And then years later, Edgar Wright did this uh, action triple bill at the Prince Charles in London and he showed Last Boy Scout, Point Break and Hard Boiled. And then I think that's when they then did hot fuzz with the cast and doing a live commentary. Uh, no Dalton, oh. but Paddy was wow. there, and everyone. So that was so I saw so I got to see it on the in the cinema with a appropriate crowd. This was probably about I don't know two thousand and six maybe. So that was wonderful. So so those are sort of my my last Boy Scout moments, and I've always really liked it. I'm sure I must have watched it in New Zealand with Fox Force Five, including Robin the Potter because we all loved it then um so so yes i'm sure we saw it then as well so yes a lot of happy memories with this film uh, That's today, great, that's- <laughs> yes what were your takeaways like um in terms of your recent viewing then did it go down well
0: <clears throat> it it did Sheps. i i thoroughly enjoyed it again i'm i've got, i'll do what i sometimes do with this if you game and i'll just go through it's my great. notes to see if they prompt stuff for you as well so I want to start with <laughs> <laughs> the opening, right? I remembered it, but I misremembered it. With, the, with the, I knew it danced. It's, I remembered it started all boppy and zippy and flashy. It's a Tony Scott film, FFS. But, but- also
1: it's, it's done in the style of... Friday night's a good night for football. So it's got spinning credits and, and <laughs> yeah. crazy stuff. And you know the guy who's singing who looks like Joel Schumacher on steroids. Um, that's one of the righteous brothers, yeah, which Bill is hysterical. <laughs> Amazing.
0: I've got a whole Amazing. thing I wanted to say about all of that, Chefs. Can I start on the Bill Medley thing with yes. I I had to look at this, I was like, Bill Medley, right? There's no way his real name is Medley like he definitely <laughs> changed his surname, right? Like otherwise, it's just like you're called like. Then he had the know, cool ben to call Carpenter. himself a righteous
1: brother. Make up <laughs> yeah. your mind, sing another tune.
0: And um, and he is William. Who's born William Medley. His real name wow. is Medley, so he was always going to be a singer. I, I thought that was very that tickled me. Um, assuming Wikipedia is right, but you know that's pretty cool. I have Sheppy written down the lyrics to Friday Nights. A great night. <laughs> Because it really made me laugh. And I think with my current croaky voice, it might be quite fun to just... I just want to read these to you and just see how they land for you. Friday night's a great night for football. You can feel it in the air, like lightning on the edge of the night. Lightning on the... Okay, I'll, I'll tell. <laughs> you. You can feel it everywhere, but it's party time in Cleveland tonight. Friday night's a great night for football. Catching a... Catching his tight ends, ready to do it. My favorite bit's coming up. Friday night's a great night for football. Sit back and relax and let's get down to it. It's going to be a hell of a night. You got a great night of football tonight. In this primetime jungle, every primal is a rumble. Every seat's the 50 yard line. Guaranteed to have a good time. Woo, woo, woo. <laughs> that's good stuff every man. seat Sheppy every seat is the 50-yard <laughs> line according to Bill Medley I think he's in <laughs> line for some refunds to be honest but that's okay
1: <laughs> yeah that's a guarantee you should not be making
0: <laughs> well you'll be happy to know when it comes to my pitch I have started with a boppy little number as well oh, um for a different reason um oh, it's um that I love that it then is from that zippy yes. cheekiness, it's straight into that horrendous can I looking game. Then,
1: like if I can into, you know, like popping, please,
0: I want, I great. want to prompt you. This
1: I love that opening and then going straight into that scene, which is so shocking when you don't know what's going to happen and it's so brutal in that when he pulls out the gun and he shoots the first guy in the head, he shoots another guy in the shoulder, but it's the fact that he kneecaps the other guy as he's running. Um, And so it's like this professional football player gets kneecapped. It's like, oh, what a, his life, the rest of his life, what's that gonna be like? Um, That's, I wanna see a film about that guy. Our next Loose Ends pod, (laughs) I want the kneecapped football player from the beginning of the film. It's such a brutal thing. By the way, when he shoots himself, Billy Cole, um, at the end of that amazing, shocking, brilliant scene, uh, and he says, ain't life a bitch, Shane Black originally wrote um, I'm going to Disneyland was his last line because that's what American football players always say like hey you have just win the cup what are you going to do now I'm going to Disneyland so that but they couldn't do it because Disney were like new um, so one of others was like yeah we can't um, so, so anyway I love that opening
0: yeah it's a cracker um, I think it may be my favourite kind of cuckold wife cheating scene in a movie with Joe's finger right. scale and the whole toilet seat's up and yeah. blah, blah, blah. Like it was, it's just such a cool little scene, isn't it? And Why didn't so Mike, Mike
1: get out of the house as soon as he's like, Jesus, Joe, I thought you were still in Vegas. Yeah. He's like, oh, like, get out of the house then. He's like, why did you stick around for a shower? You fooled. Um, so yeah, yeah. But yes, yeah. that is amazing. That is amazing. The wife, by the way, is played by the lady who played Tila in *Masters of the Universe* with Dolph Lundgren. So there you Whoa. go. Whoa! Yes. How about that,
0: man? Oh, nice. Um, I. Uh... <laughs> Oh, that whole thing as well. <clears throat> it's got a lot of stuff that's really full on and quite shocking now because we're just not used to seeing this stuff in movies these days, but in the same way, like the the guy forcing the, the girl down for the blowjob in the Jacuzzi, man. It's pretty rough. And and the best arm in the National League, remember that. It's a very cool moment, an entrance for Wyans properly. I just, I just liked that. And the fact um, that it has the
1: cool back at the end. Uh, oh, and man.
0: Was... I mean... And he that's... takes
1: the ball, you know. Yeah. It's
0: extraordinary the birthday with the ball,
1: <laughs> and I love the fact, by the way, jumping right to the end, that the senator—he's such a horrible character in every way. He's deplorable, um, sort of the Baynard, and yet the whole thing is them trying to save his life, which I—I I really love. Like. Really, um, that's yeah. a, a nice touch. Um, yes, that actor, by the way, who plays Senator Baynard, played—he um, was in Mad Men as. Um, as uh, bocca I think. Oh well, uh, nice.
0: girl, yeah. So he's he's one of those, isn't he? He's a tobo he's probably a tobo equivalent for a couple. Like do you know what I mean? He's a real like in everything dude, isn't he? You notice
1: your boyfriend from Sons of Anarchy, Kim Coates. Well I have one. that
0: right here. Yeah. Tiggy <laughs> boy. Tiggy's in do that again, I'll kill you guy. I had that was yes. such a treat. That was such yes. a treat. And that's one that. of
1: the most iconic scenes ever. Like yeah. that's
0: just amazing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Yeah. And what a punch. Like, you know, yeah. it really was like it's it's up there with the Bruce Lee, you know, you can break someone's uh, rib cage, and, you know what I mean? You can kill him with one punch to the rib cage sort of thing. You know, it's got that vibe, isn't it? That kind of, I'll punch your nose through your brain, you know, that kind of thing.
1: It's oh. the classic. It's actually the Riker maneuver that he does. It's the palm. It's not, so it, 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 it's a fit, it's a palm into the nose, pushing the bone up into the brain. Uh, it's good stuff
0: really really full on, and wonderful um i love the uh i just like the little the way they they throw the 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 sprinkle the boy scout element you know save the president's life proper boy scout but i really like the signing of the picky it gives me shivers it's very enigmatic with the yeah um the uh i always i mean you know, you've given us a treat, Sheppy. I didn't realise how fun it would be. I by no means want to say anything I've written is even worthy of um being near the toenail of what Shane Black accomplished with this movie. But nonetheless, attempting to write some Locker Room Boys banter was a hell of a lot of fun. <laughs> Maybe some of the most fun I've had on on Sog and Um, and it's just littered with amazing lines isn't it like when even just he's going to the bathroom want to come the doc said I shouldn't lift anything heavy I always (laughs) thought that's really funny and um and I I got I genuinely laughed out loud with the fast forward eats the tape fast forward eats the tape Um, everyone
1: can relate everyone can relate (laughs) they had it and they fuck it up it's so yeah yeah it's genius. also, speaking of amazing lines, um, Joe, if you're going to drive any faster, we're going to go back in time. Yeah. That's amazing. I mean, there's nothing but amazing lines, but that's just one that jumped into my mind.
0: Or <laughs> well, being yeah. beat up by the inventor of Scrabble with the other guy. Yes. It's really it's really And Also, nice.
1: those two baddies, especially the guy, you know, Drake attacks his work with a certain exuberance. Um, he's so, he could be the main villain. He's so charismatic. He's in stuff. He's in loads of stuff. He's in the Big Lebowski, amongst many things. He could be, but he's in that one scene, and then he get blown up, uh, which I really that's just another thing. And whilst we're thinking about that, the henchmen at the beginning, when they they go to take Joe out and they're going to kill Halle Berry. And they take Joe out to the, you know, and one of their goons says they don't have, there's no contract on him. Well, then you'll kill him for free. It's like, oh, these bad guys are not messing around. Uh, and I like that as well. Um, yes,
0: really cool. Halle Berry's great and actually, just for yeah, and the, that's big shocking impact as well. Yeah. you
1: assume if you don't know anything about the film that it's going to be them, and so the fact that immediately they fail in the job or Joe fails, and it's really jimmy's fault it's damon wayne's fault he's like go on get in the car and he's sort of like not taking it seriously and everything even though he doesn't know the seriousness and all that but it's like go on i'll follow you and all of that um yeah it's shocking when she dies yeah amazing and again so brutal brilliant
0: yeah it's a great tony scott death that one to be fair yeah absolutely danger's my middle name Mine's Cornelius. Tell anyone I kill you is <laughs> <It's> amazing.
1: <laughs> yes.
0: If I can give Shane Black one note, and and although there's some some troubling sexism, at the, particularly at the end, maybe maybe, but but I th- there's one note for but me. Pe- we don't
1: is, skip over that. What's for I troubling won't. Sexism? I promise.
0: I, well, it's not necessarily. It's just saying. So let me just get down to. Hang on. Hang on. Uh, all right. So it's just like so. There's the moment at the yeah. end. His wife gives a big apology, which you know, she was sleeping with Mike justified, needed. But let's be honest, I put it here. Witness is no saint. He's been sleeping in the car and away and away and away. You know, not the great, not the world's greatest husband, maybe. But the I don't final... know if that's
1: sexist, honestly. No, I, no, don't no, wanna, no, no. I don't well, want to shoot. Let me get, get to
0: the point. Let me just get to the point. Sorry. So just that I was I was too much preamble there. But basically the final line after she's apologized is <laughs> as he hugs her. Fuck you, Sarah, lying bitch. If cops weren't here, I'd spit in your face. That's the last thing he says to his wife. I as have to say, her. though, but
1: that, I mean, that, and that is, you've got all sorts of issues there and you're correct. And also she is a very underwritten character. But the point there is that she tells him to say that to her at the beginning. And so it's a callback to that.
0: Oh, yeah. Okay. Shit. You know, that's nice, ships You've uncorked that for me in a lovely way that's good I'd forgotten that even and even though I watched it there and there, there you go wonderful <laughs> man wonderful well look, I'm glad I tabled it and you were able to um to, to to do it but let me give you like a more practical one for Shaney right so it's just I felt like the bit where Jimmy Dix is opening his heart and actually Wayne's is doing a decent job with all the lines and everything you know and, and yeah. is good in the movie Um, but I, I've just put that like it gets too complicated I thought like very enigmatic that he lost it loses his way um after the, the 300 game when his sons died while he's playing you know great speech and then we get into gambling and we get into drug addiction these are all worthy things and all important to talk about all problems i guess with the with the american football league and all that stuff but i just thought for his character you know you've given us enough like do you know what i mean and then it's kind of like after he gets caught with the drugs and it's great he gets caught and kicked out, don't get me wrong, but, like, just that Jimmy speech again then in the bathroom, I just thought was, oh, okay, this is the I wee bit say, too much.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, no, totally, I, I agree. But I like the fact that they're bonding and then he catches him doing the drugs and it's like, that could be the end of that friendship and stuff. And he
0: cracks Yeah, me too. Of that. Um, I love so that, that, that one. too. I just wish he didn't And he takes the drugs
1: season. because it's the dead wife and kid shit, so I get that. He actually got fired because he was gambling. Um so that's that's it wasn't even the drugs they put in put in I believe. Um but you're right, maybe the gambling was, was too much. Well uh, I
0: yeah. I don't mind all of the detail. I'm j i am just, I suppose I'm just saying like the two speeches in the one scene for me, maybe just like keep it to the one speech, which was beautiful around when the sun dies and stuff. Uh, anyway. Okay. Um yeah, but no, all no. the details well, with the latest, that in mind,
1: just... I can I can back you up there. My note to, to Shane is Jimmy is like nearish the beginning when they're leaving the cop station, I believe, and he says, um, you know, Jimmy says something to him and he says, fuck off, back to, you know, so Joe says to Jimmy, fuck off. But then, in like, almost the next line, Jimmy says, fuck you. And then Jimmy, and then Joe says, snappy comeback. It's like, well, I love the snappy comeback line, but then don't have him have just said the same photograph yeah. snappy comeback. One line previously, so that's my note to black. And also, maybe give Sarah more to do. I was going to give Sarah the wife more to do in this, and I didn't. So, <laughs> so there you go. I didn't say. So, yeah, I really wanted. I wanted to find out what job she had. I wanted to really get into the Sarah of it all. And no, no, I didn't. But there you go. You can't <laughs> win them all.
0: Can't um, wait for you. Yes. I, I'm nearly there. In the my notes, I just wanted to say as well, like McCrone. Uh, he as a line I'd not noticed before, but I really enjoyed it this time is just the put them out of my misery. just the my nice. is perfect. that yes. is sort of lovely yes. um he's a
1: good
0: rhythm. <laughs> I put that throw to deflect the bullet at the end or catch the bullet or blow the ball. that was amazing. Um, I just this is amazing well, the, the
1: bull smacks his head out of the way of the bullet, um,
0: yes, of course you're right. sorry that yeah, it's perfect, perfect. I am. Um, the crowd reactions, Shep, I put at the end, are ridiculous yeah. and amazing <laughs> and really made me laugh out loud. Like, not just pre- and I know it's sort of semi-intentional. Well, probably is intentional, but anyway, it's not just pre nine eleven. like in terms of this is before you know America's pretty, but hear me out here. Like <laughs> so there's a little panic. You hear it. The bullets are happening in the stadium, and that's that's terrifying. And um, but the crowd is still there, no one's evacuated, and then there's a massive ooh, where the villain gets chopped up. <laughs> and then there's a big cheer from the crowd, when Will is doing his, his jig. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's amazing. That is actually really Even amazing. Even forgetting decision.
1: about like, the fact that maybe they're free. I mean, by the way, Jimmy, I don't know about the Mentioning nine eleven was really very fair, man. But yes, there's a gunshot at a a sporting event. You probably would be freaked out. And then he has Milo has an amazing death and gets splattered on the helicopter blades. And then the crowd—they don't know who Willis is. They've just seen someone get thrown onto a helicopter and get splattered. And then they cheer that the person who did that does this little dance. That's ridiculous in the best possible way (laughs) and I have no problem with it. And the whole like, I'll dance a dig when I solve this case I swear to God, it seems so shoehorned in. But it's like but I love it. I don't mind. I don't mind. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yes. There are so many. We mentioned Kim Coates um, and there are lots of people. Bruce Bruce McGill who plays Mike, who was in everything as well. Everything. Every 90s film and MacGyver and Quantum Leap. Yeah, uh, I love him, and many, 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 many other people as well. Great cast, really good. Yes. Were there any other on your? On Not your lovely...
0: particularly, Sheppy. I I called out, and you've called it already. You know that that whole uh, Tony Scott, Joel Silver beef. Um, I I just had one other note. Um, well, it was at the time it was a record-breaking screenplay, so he was paid one point seven my five mil for the script, which is pretty mad, isn't it? Good for um, him. And yeah, then...
1: nice. Well, after Lethal Weapon, it doesn't surprise me. Um, but yes, uh-huh. that's wonderful. I know that the original script is very different, and Maynard, or Baynard, were the, the senator, was the main villain in the original draft, and the original draft had an ending on like a water boat, or something, a water boat, okay. <laughs> as opposed to another sort of boat, but it was like a, some, something to do with like on a canal or something like that, very different. Um, so that's Thanks. interesting as well. Um, I mentioned that this is my favourite Tony Scott film. I will say for the record, love a bit of Beverly Hills Cop 2, love a bit of Top Gun, Um, but it's the trilogy of the early 90s that Tony Scott made, and I I think they were um, sequential. Um, He made Last Boy Scout, True Romance, Crimson Tide, and I adore all three of those, and after that, I think Tony Scott got a bit too MTV in his editing and everything he made after Crimson Tide is like a music video, more and more and more and more. I don't think I dislike any Tony Scott films, but those three from the early 90s, uh, I think are pretty untouchable.
0: I agree with that completely, Shebs. Can I clarify, do you put Lethal Weapon in the same bracket as this one?
1: Yes, I do. Meaning do I prefer this to Lethal Weapon? Yeah, yes, yeah. I do. Okay.
0: And that, that, I have a point, and I know, and I'm, I'm I'm on the line
1: about that so many times, but I'll, I'll tell you what gives this the edge for me. Um, one thing is, I love how Tony Scott directed this film. I love the look of, of all Tony Scott films, the, the lighting, the cigarette smoke, and all of it. It's wonderful, the filters. I'm a big fan, and I would say, and a lot of this is the editing. I don't know how much Tony Scott actually had to do with the physical construction of the film in the edit. But it has some of the best editing and the and the way it's shot as well. And I'll go right back to the beginning with the uh, in the football match at the beginning in the rain and uh, Billy Cole shoots all the guys and then shoots himself. But just before he shoots himself, he drops the ball and all the cops are running to him. And it's this kind of Dutch angle. And it's so beautiful. Um, it's I love it. My point ultimately is that Richard Donner, I love Richard Donner and I love Lethal Weapon, but it seems like he's he's pointing the camera at things, which is great, great, great. Um, and that, but Tony Scott, in this film, he shoots the, the script, like, perfectly, beat for beat, he does sack this like he totally understands exactly. And my example to you, I'll give, is in the alleyway, when the big pimp motherfucker is going to kill... Uh, Joe, and he makes him laugh, and that's the other thing I love about Joe is his humour is his greatest weapon and he's all the way through we have examples of that and he makes the guy laugh once with the fat joke and then he he builds it and does the second fat joke and the guy laughs a bit more, and then he hits it again, and then the guy throws his head back and does a great big laugh and he gets a bottle in the neck and that build-up it's just, again, it's just shooting exactly perfectly the beats of the script and realizing it you know and that doesn't exist in the lethal weapons um and and by the way superman the movie and the omen are shot like that by donna um so it's interesting that at a certain point donna just sort of i don't know maybe he filmed just lots of coverage whatever the reason um but the tony scott direction of it and also i will say my favorite edit in any film ever, or at least the one that I always think about, is when J- uh, Joe Willis is sitting in the car and he sent Jimmy Waynes to, he goes, you know, um, to, he goes, I'll give you a lift. And he goes, no, I've got, I'll take Corey's car. And he goes, but I thought that was Corey's car back there, Jimmy. But he's left. And so, he's, so Joe is sitting there in the car, just pondering for a second. And then the moment he clicks, his brain clicks, and he realizes Connie had two cars, um, it it cuts from a, a medium to a close up of the moment of his deduction. And I, I I love that. I love that deeply. Um and so that's another aspect. It's a very, very cinematic film.
0: Beautifully made point man. Yeah. Thank you. Uh <laughs> yeah. Wow. It's actually made me sort of Reappreciate and almost want to do a second lap and really think about that as i do it honestly um, it's it's it's
1: solid stuff yes um i'm gonna I, I made some notes so i wouldn't forget to mention anything so i'm just gonna quickly consult what i've while, got while
0: you consult um, let me give you one thing this is yes. only three years after the original diehard
1: it's crazy isn't
0: it i just can't get my yes. head around that like, it feels like bruce willis has already regenerated for this one yes. and like i feel yes. like um it's pretty mad to me. Like I can't quite get it, how well, confident he is. with that in mind, he I,
1: I read a review or something about Last Boy Scout once and it, and it stuck with me because the reviewer said that Joe Hallenbeck is uh, John McLean's older, tougher brother. And <laughs> I I love that. Um, And I love Hallenbeck because it's hell and back. Uh, it's not that subtle, but I love that. I love his introduction. Um, where he's sleeping in the car with the squirrel <laughs> and then his sort of quote-unquote pep talk to himself with, like, nobody likes you, oh, everybody wow. hates you, you're going to lose, smile, you fuck, is um, is actually brilliant.
0: Um yeah, so I love that. It's brilliant as
1: well. Yes. Yeah. I think it's my favourite Shane Black script. I think it's my second favourite Bruce Willis film, After Die Hard. Um, it might be my second favourite action film of all time. Um... Uh, oh, yeah, there was another thing. So I don't know if you noticed, but when Darius, the daughter, is watching TV when they come home, it, she's watching Lethal Weapon. And that's lovely. Um, but you know what? And we're living in a world with, where crossovers are very much the norm these days. And that's great. And I love a good crossover. And they weren't invented in the in this century. Crossovers have happened many, many times over the decades. Um, what I really wish is there's no reason why, like, if they did, if she wasn't watching Lethal Weapon on TV, then I would absolutely believe, I would choose to believe, in a fan sort of way, that it's the same universe as Lethal Weapon. And it's like, why not? Like, it even has, when they go, when Jimmy and Joe walking into their car from the police station, it's like the underground Parking garage, and a whoop 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 of all the police cars, and it's exactly the same as *Lethal Weapon* one when they're walking to their car, and it could even be the same exact area. And I, you, and if I was doing it, I would just have like a Mel Gibson wannabe and a Danny Glover wannabe like walking in the <laughs> yeah. background, and be like, "Hey, Joe," or something like that. Um, you know, just I, I would, and, and even the the police captain. Why not have it as the captain from *Lethal Weapon*? Um it's Warner Brothers, it's Shane Black, it's Joel Silver. They could have done it. Um, and and that would have made me made me happy. So so that's my other little thing that I kind of wish they had have done. Um, that would have been nice.
0: Yeah, totally. <laughs> I, I, I think it could all exist in that LA bubble for sure. I like that.
1: Yeah, yeah. By the way, do you have a favorite Tony Scott off the top of your head whilst we're talking about that?
0: I think True Romance Chefs. Nice. yeah yeah by, by a distance I love it That's yeah right.
1: that is totally valid so
0: but there I agree you go, the other two in that little trilogy they're all five stars I mean you know he really he was cooking he was yeah cooking I mean out. I will
1: say for the record Last Boy Scout is not a perfect film but I love every frame of it yeah yeah so, so yes yes was there anything else uh, nope, Jimmy.
0: I am bloody. I'm just itching to see where you went and how you, uh, okay, how you well, uh, approached this.
1: It's not a shepik, but it is obviously longer than the five pages that I promised you. to which I really apologise, but
0: don't apologise, uh, yeah. Sheppy. We're all very happy, very happy. Okay. I thought for once I'd got my running shoes on and was going to be able to at least keep within distance of you but Size I
1: doesn't matter Jimmy Size <laughs> does
0: not matter The group talk's already starting, I get it I You like, yeah. can
1: quote me on that um, <laughs> uh, By the way, I haven't cast anyone new in this meaning I don't know who I would have as other people Oh, one other thing I'll quickly mention, Milo the main henchman um, secondary villain in this who's really the main threat ultimately um, in, in Last Boy Scout Uh, I adore him, I Mm. love him very much. And when I was halfway up Machu Picchu, um, we were all having, in, in my group, we were hiking up the mountain and we were in a tent, having like this sort of, I think it was like a hot chocolate type thing. And it was made by this company called Milo, Milo Chocolate. And I told, it was like a very, very multicultural group that we were climbing up, a multinational group. And I told everyone that in England, milo was a slang or nickname for a bad man just because of milo in this and i don't think they believed me but there you go and there's a character the equivalent character in in mine i've called bosco because um there's a chocolate syrup which george (laughs) costanza likes uh called bosco so that's why i've called him bosco so there you go
0: that's Uh, brilliant a super big fan inspired, I love it, but <laughs> well, you, well, you don't need me to tell you, I probably more than made up for your casting uh, decision, Sheppy, <laughs> with all sorts of shenanigans, um, which we'll get to in a bit.
1: Okay, great. Well, I'll jump in then, Jimmy. Thank you. This is wonderful. Um, last Boy Scout 2, 1993, so I'm doing the classic two years later. I don't, there's, if if Last Boy Scout had been successful and they did make a sequel, there's no way Tony Scott would have come back, but in this reality, they offered him too much money and he did. So it is Tony Scott. Uh, you got your Willis, your Waynes, uh, Chelsea Field does pop back in as Sarah, Danielle Harris as, um, as Darius, the daughter, does make an appearance, Joe Santos, who is the captain, who isn't the captain from The Weapon, he's in it. Um, and that's that's essentially the it for the returning cast, I believe. Um, so there you go. So it starts. We have a title sequence. Um, I will say there are some beats in this film that I am kind of annoyed at in that they are too much of a parallel with the first film. But what can you do? <laughs> that's, that's the way the cookie crumbles. Um, but we start with Last Boy Scout 2, the titles, and we playing um instead of the jazzy pop stuff we have uh somewhere over the rainbow is playing a very slow and melodic version as we have shots with the credits playing over the top of los angeles and specifically hollywood we see shots of the hollywood sign and the studios of family hills and the super rich but then also shots of the slums and the down and outs and the hopeless and the damned at the end of the credits as the song crescendos with a shot low to the ground as a homeless man smokes a crack pipe and we have this epic crane shot as we go up seeing a group of uniformed cops attacking a cowering youth with their nightsticks, children watching from the street corner, a prostitute laughing despondently next to a bag lady as she gets her shopping trolley full of cans stolen by some cackling teens, with the shot going really high up, ending with all of this visible on the sunset strip below, with the Hollywood sign looking over all of them, directed by Tony Scott, comes on, and we open... And I try to do a sort of an equivalent um, to the opening, you know, shocking moment scene from the first film. And we open. And it's um... the other thing I'll just quickly mention is I decided, you know, I wasn't, I didn't want to do like sport, a sport angle again. So um, I went for a sort of a film movie angle instead of the football angle of the plot from the first film. Nice. So we open. Uh, a heaving, busy movie studio, and inside a vast hangar is a bustling manic and heaving soundstage film set. It's being dressed like an alien planet, very cheesy with Star Trek esque orange sky backdrop and polystyrene rocks. Actors um and extras amble around, some dressed as outlandish aliens, some like weird, scantily clad, green-skinned sex slaves, and some like clunking Robbie the Robot knockoffs. And there are cameras and dollies and cranes being set up, and gaffers swearing at each other, producer types in suits, uh, lackeys and gophers with coffee all running around, backstage bods tearing about trying to look busy. And at the centre of all of this is the film's leading lady, the film in question that they're filming here Uh, a young beautiful actress named Debbie Rhodes who's wearing a silver quasi-futuristic and impossibly impractical and revealing costume and she is talking to the director who's like a young pretentious bearded type who when he's not screaming at his crew is screaming at his cast and Debbie is asking him So when I say, hand me the jewels of Orion, for your mystery is a shroud and the castle of eternity shall fall, should I be angry about the castle or lustful about the jewels? And the director is trying his best not to lose his mind, barely keeping it together. And he screams at a passing lackey just as the studio head enters, a man in his 60s called Manny Pantanego. And uh, Manny, has the tanned skin and bleached teeth of the extremely wealthy. Uh, he talks a moment with the director saying, now don't blow this son, we've got a lot riding on this feature and the last thing we need is some airheaded headed bimbo fucking up the money shut to end all money shots. Uh, he says he has a bunch, uh, he has a brunch with the other studio heads about the new big studio that's opening soon before his lunch meeting with possible replacements. And the director says, the placements for who? And Manny says, for you, of course, dipshit. And he leaves in a hurry, looking at his watch. And as he leaves the soundstage through, like the large, big, double metallic doors that you find in such places, he passes uh, a small black plasticky sort of looking box um, stuck to the wall near the door, which we hold on for a moment. Uh, the director waits for Manny to leave before muttering, you're the one who hired this bimbo bitch, before moving to sit in his director's chair on the camera crane, he stops, removing his hands from the back of the chair, rubbing his finger and thumb together, examining this sort of weird yellow powder that's come off his chair, and he turns and screams at a passing flunky, Jesus Christ, Mannings, here's more of this shit, it's everywhere, I'm going to be finding this fucking powder under my skin for weeks, turd dick, you told me you'd clean this shit up. And uh, Mannings, the lackey, says, Yes, sir, but it's everywhere. The DP just found a coating over the A and B cameras, too. And the director says, I don't care where you find it, just get rid of it. I mean, Christ, this is the only movie set in history in this pit of a town to be covered in the only powder you can't shove up your nose. Now you clean this shit up or I'll shove it somewhere else. Your ass! And the lackey's like, Yes, sir, and hurries off, muttering to himself, not my job to clean up this pig shit of a set. Now the actress, Debbie, and the robots and aliens and extras and so on are all on position, and the director on his crane seat, which is now raising up, overlooking the entire stage, he screams into his electric bullhorn, and the director's like, let's get this shit show on the road. Where are we ready, ladies? and lighting is adjusted, and the bell rings for silence on set, and the skittish and ditzy actress straightens now, getting into a heroic and willful pose, ready for her line. And so behind the cameras, we see the lackey sidle up to one of the gaffers, and the lackey runs his finger down the no smoking sign on the wall behind him, examines his fingertip, which is also now covered in this very fine yellow powder. And the lackey says, you know what this shit is? And the gaffer, not turning around, says, yeah, a $50 million turkey. We see the director study the set. We see the cameraman uh, and all the cameramen readying their shots. We see the lighting gaffers running last-minute checks and the DP squinting through a viewfinder. And we again move in on this plastic box, which is stuck to the wall. Then back to the director and to himself. He says, dear God, save me from amateurs, auteurs and assholes. And then louder, back into his bullhorn, and action! And we have a massive camera move where we follow the main camera on a dolly move in this long shot. So it's like a camera filming a camera doing a move. Which, and it moves all the way across the set right into a massive close-up of the heroine as she turns into that camera and to deliver her line. And Debbie, the actress, says, Hand me the jewels of Orion. The our mystery is a shroud and the castle of Epitone shall fall. And the director says to himself, did she just say epitony? What the fuck is epitony? And the actress then cools out, out of character, holding up a thumb, hopefully. Was that okay? Now from the far wall, the black box makes a fizzing noise and then sparks just once. A tiny spark comes out, which turns into a tiny flame then grows and this flame now expands and as the air combusts around it the flame spreads like a backdraft and it moves as if the air itself is flammable growing and spreading and moving like liquid fire growing and growing and growing the lackey turns just in time to see the wall of fire growing exponentially in all directions rushing straight for him and he has time to say holy shit before he is engulfed by the fire the gaffer is engulfed the cameramen the crew the milling extras, the DP is looking through a lens and we see his point of view through the lens as the flame races right at the viewfinder and he is engulfed from his high vantage point. The director sees all of this, sees this wall of fire like water moving, filling up the entire space of this huge soundstage. The craft service table is engulfed. The craft service lady screams and we see for a second her mouth is full of sandwich and then she is engulfed. A robot uh, turns around and says, what the fuck, before he is engulfed. In the centre of the soundstage, Debbie, the actress, stares wide-eyed as the alien sex slaves turn to run and then they are all engulfed. The director screams as the fireball consumes the entirety of the space, reaching him, the, the, the air blowing him off his high seat to fly through the air before he is engulfed as well as he flies a huge wide shot of the entire space, now just fire and bodies being blown to ash. Now outside the building, through these huge sealed metal studio doors, the red light is on reading, closed set, do not enter, and a themed stream of smoke escapes from between the double door seal. We pull back away from this, being outside the sound stage, all is calm and normal, there's no noise from inside, Uh, People are just milling about, no idea what's going on inside the set. The pull-out stops by the mammoth doors with two security guards, a younger man on his feet next to an older, larger guard sitting beneath the red light and sign, reading a newspaper. And the young colleague turns to him and says, Did you hear that? And the older guard says, What? And the younger one, I don't know, it sounded like screaming. And the older guard, looking back to his paper, says, Welcome to Hollywood, kid. And we cut. And that's basically the that's a great last line of that
0: <laughs> sequence, Shep. bloody great. And I feel like if if you, I mean, of course, you would be subbing out True Romance, but, you know, if he hadn't had the chance to give us that producer of True Romance, like, you stab me at the heart. You know, <laughs> um, like, you've got that opportunity to bring that full energy to that dude there, the director. But yeah, lovely, yeah. lovely, lovely. Welcome to Hollywood. All right, man. <laughs> I mean, I'm settled <laughs> so- and happy.
1: We cut to first scene proper, it's an LA street, it's night, Joe and Jimmy on a stakeout, sitting in Joe's beaten up car, uh, and they banter a little bit, but Joe is tense. Uh, Joe, of course, is Bruce Willis, Jimmy is Damon Wayans, and Jimmy in the car says to Joe, You know, Joe, we've been at this a little while now, right? He waits for a response, gets none, continues, and we've been working more or less steadily, right? He waits for a response, gets none, continues. Well, my question is, how long are you planning on keeping this piece of shit car, man? Fuckers like tetanus on wheels. Then after a long pause, Joe says, some things are worth more than money, Jimmy. And Jimmy considers and then says, yeah, you know what's not worth more than money? A new fucking car. (laughs) And Joe now turns and just looks at him. And Jimmy's like, I swear, man, for a man who has everything, a wife, a kid, a piece of shit car, you don't smile too much, you know? And Joe, happiness is just like anything else, slick, one day at a time. Then they uh, they stiffen, looking out the windshield uh, as their mark appears across the road. And we see it's Darius and a date emerging from a movie theater. The title on the cinema marquee reads Spider Circus. And Jimmy is like, That's okay, perfect. you happy, Joe?
0: Perfect.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Jimmy <laughs> says, uh, okay, you happy, Joe? Right on time. And Joe, you kidding me? Right on time? Spider Circus started after previews at 8.15. Movies, one hour, 43, without credits. With credits, is 48 even if they wanted to see who the goddamn best boy, Key Grip, whatever the fuck was, and even if with a four-minute bathroom trip, they should have been out eight minutes ago. You know what that means? And Jimmy, yeah, I'm in a car with Rain Man right now. And Joe says, it means that this little pissant's been making out with my daughter. And Jimmy, "Uh, hey, you don't know that man. He might have been selling her coke. And uh, Joe looks at him. Keep with the chuckles, knucklehead. When I'm done with him, his acne scars will be his most distinguished feature. And Jimmy, yo, Joe. your issues never cease to amaze. You know that? And Joe, try having a daughter sometime. Jimmy, I try having daughters all the time, man. It's fathers like you that make it all but impossible. And he smiles at Joe, (laughs) trying to get one back, but all he gets is a stare from hell. And then they look both back out into the street, but both teenagers have gone. Um, Darius is now 15, of course. Uh, And Joe is like, ah, Christ, now you've made me lose them. And Jimmy, it probably saved you from being arrested for gun violence to a minor. You can thank me later. Joe's about to retort when Darius jumps out and plants her face next to Joe's window with a shriek, making them both jump and yell. Joe recovers and starts to be stern with Darius, but she's angry with him as well. Uh, very quickly, he loses the moral high ground. Her date, Mike, stands to one side, gawkish and awkward. And Joe and Jimmy um, both give uh, they, they give the teens a lift home. Uh, so they're driving uh, Jimmy and Joe in the front, Darius uh, steaming with anger in the back seat with Mike next to her, looking mm-hmm. as awkward as it's possible to get. And, you know, he's like geeky and gawky type um after riding in insanely tense silence for some moments jimmy tries to break the ice and jimmy says like into the back seat yo is it always like a movie with you two, or do you ever like i don't know go take in something more culturally resound and darius culturally resound what the fuck does that mean and jimmy you know like a sporting event or something much more wholesome plus fresh air the roar of the crowd And Darius, oh, what, like a football game? The only roar coming from one of those are 500 suckers sighing in collective boredom. 500, if you're lucky. And Jimmy sort of faces front again, mumbling moodily to himself. Don't know why I try making conversation with anyone in this family. There's another icy pause. And then Joe, he he tries his best and he says, so what was the movie like? If you caught a frame of it, of course. And Mike, the date there, sort of perks up, and he tries to speak, getting a tiny bit of confidence, and he talks about the classic that they've just watched, which he loves and has apparently seen like a hundred times. And Mike says, it's amazing, you know, it's an old film, it's, it's from 1983, can you imagine? And even Jimmy is bummed by this. We learned that the film, uh, Joe saying, what the fuck is a spider circus? It stars uh, sci-fi legend Connie Sedgwick, who neither Joe nor Jimmy have ever heard of her. And Darius rolling her eyes, well, ain't that a fucking surprise? And Joe, hey, watch your mouth. And Darius, you watch my mouth. And she leans over and full-on kisses Mike, who doesn't respond, sitting in frozen terror. And we cut to outside as the car slams to a stop on the side of the road. And we hear Joe shouting, Jimmy, give me my gun. And a tiny voice from Mike, "Uh, sir, I can walk from here. And we cut to Joe's house um, and uh, Darius remains angry with Joe, but they are ultimately on good terms. And inside, Jimmy and Joe and Darius enter and we meet Sarah and we have a brief appraisal of a functioning marriage and home life. Not perfect, but all parties in the family are working on it. Uh, We learn that Jimmy is vaguely jealous of this home setup. He's been having lots of one-night stands, but nothing remotely serious. And Jimmy is like, I'm just waiting for the right woman. And Joe, you wait any longer, you'll be able to skip the whole getting-to-know-you shit, cut to the chase and pick out your retirement home on the first date. Maybe live it up and go coffin shopping. Uh, So, that's the setup. Uh, Next day, Joe and Jimmy uh, get a job, and they are summoned to a major Hollywood film studio for a meeting with the movie mogul and studio head, and it's Manny Pantanego, um, and they gather in his plush office. Uh, Manny wants Jimmy and Joe to protect his wife, ex-starlet, the one and only Connie Sedgwick, uh, who has quote-unquote semi-retired from, move, from movies and now has a recurring role on a popular daytime soap opera. So after narrowly escaping the notorious studio explosion last month, which Manny believes was not only deliberate, though no trace of of arson was found, Manny also tells them that he believes his wife was ultimately the target. She, we find out, was meant to be there as the lead actress. No one knew that she wasn't going to be there and that this film was to be her big comeback, but she had actually been replaced by her husband, Manny, uh, with Debbie, the younger actress. So Manny says he's been shaken by the whole ordeal. Um, But he still, despite this, seems pretty chatty and boisterous. And Jimmy has to say, you know, you'll forgive me for saying, Mr. Pantanago, but your attitude to the hundred odd folk who did die in the blaze is, I have to say, pretty blasé. And Manny, well, son, it's like this. If it's not, if it's too hot for you, turn the meat. And Jimmy's like, all right. Uh, The meeting ends and as they all leave and they shake hands, Riding down together in the elevator, they ponder the job. At first, Joe and Jimmy put Manny's thoughts down to insane paranoia, but as Joe says, you're forgetting the most important aspect any detective should consider when selecting which cases to prioritize against the rest. And Jimmy, the ones that can save the most lives? And Joe, close, the ones that wear the clients richer than God. And Jimmy, amen to that. Bing, they step outside (laughs) the elevator, now outside, Joe hands the valet a ticket, uh, who goes off to get the car. And Joe, like, fucking valet, fucking super rich yahoos, fucking Hollywood. No one makes decent movies anymore. And Jimmy, I bet you're a real Ten Commandments kind of guy, ain't you, Joe? And Joe's like, French Connection, Point blank, Clint fucking Eastwood. Nowadays, it's all this sci-fi bullshit and bad fucking acting. And Jimmy, and they say film critics have it easy. The valet brings the car, and it's Jimmy's plush BMW convertible, and they get in. As they drive out of the lot, Joe says, What is it with rich folk, Jimmy? Why are they all so fucking weird? What, you asking me? I got a newsflash for you. I ain't that fucking rich. And Joe, Oh no, mister, we gotta take my car to impress the vacuous. Jimmy, It's on a weekly payment plan, man, if you must dig, which is embarrassing as all hell. And Joe is like, you were a superstar. Yeah, for like a hot minute. Now I can't even get a decent offer for a commercial. I got old colleagues getting millions for Nike and shit. Offers I got? Whole food stores and suppositories. I knew the face was familiar. Shut the fuck up. Anyway, why? What's so weird about this dude? Other than he thinks a freak accident was named at his has-been wife. Joe, uh, smelling his hand, um, saying like, Guy's got, a million, got millions upon millions of dollars, and he still stinks like halibut. Uh, and he, you know, he I shook his hand, I'm gonna be smelling this for weeks. And Jimmy, maybe he knows your mom. And Joe, classic, Jimmy, classic. And they drive off. Uh, so on the case now, Joe says he'll do some digging into this attack at the studio, and he goes to the LAPD station to speak to an old friend who's a senior detective in Hollywood. While at the department, Joe bumps into the you know, our old friend, the police captain, uh, Captain Belisa, uh, Bessalio, I believe. Um, and they have a brief banter. And of course, it's the captain from the first film who isn't Richard Donner's cousin, the captain from The Weapon. And the chief is like, tell me something, Joe. Why is it every time I see you, I feel my ulcer start to growl? You'd better not be sticking your nose where it doesn't belong. Don't worry about it. Your wife gave me permission, and besides, I get the feeling mine wasn't the furs nose that's been stuck there. Against his better judgment, the captain can't help but dig Joe's style. Joe then sees his old friend, Detective Walsh, who said he's never seen anything like the the blaze at the studio. The entire soundstage was utterly consumed by intense flame, which seemed to be spread by nothing. No one smelt anything, no explosives or flammables were left, no trace of anything. And also the fire was contained within one, the one massive room where it burnt hard, but then burnt itself out almost immediately. The only thing they found after the fact was uh, this sort of skanky yellow film, um, which came from, they think, some sort of powder, which was left on the walls and ceiling, are, uh, now burnt to a resin, which the lab boys can't identify. But they've established that it's benign and it's generally agreed on that it had nothing to do with the fire. Meanwhile, Jimmy goes to Beverly Hills and has some shtick getting onto the grounds of Manny the Producer's huge mansion so that he can meet the wife he's meant to be protecting. At the gate, he banters with the guard who lets him in because he's a football fan, or despite his being a football fan, he says. Jimmy grins and takes it, but matters as he drives up the long driveway like fake fan, fake football fan. Inside the lush and gorgeous place, Really nice big mansion. Uh, outside by the pool, Jimmy meets Connie Sedgwick, 80-star now daytime TV player. She is nothing but impossibly long legs, large sunglasses, and a snooty attitude. When she first sees Jimmy, she does for a second seem to admire what she sees, but then the mask comes up and she makes a big deal of being unimpressed. There are some bodyguard jokes at Costner's expense because the figure is around. Him year after the bodyguard and uh, Jimmy is like, never hire a white guy to do a black man's job and Connie says and what job is that? Protect the white woman? No, case the joint and steal the booze she half smiles despite herself we've got a bit of early inappropriate humour from the early 90s but there you go Jimmy sees um, that there, there are many of her and her husband's film posters on the walls of the mansion and one of them is Spider Circus And Jimmy's like, oh shit, I know a big fan of that movie. And Connie looks and is like, ugh. And Jimmy, you're not proud of that one, huh? My husband produced that piece of shit. Like most of the pieces of shit I made, I only did it because Manny threatened to sue for breach of contract if I didn't. Jimmy, the key to any happy marriage. Jimmy banters and flirts, but she's having none of it. His uh, first remarks are also that for a classy house like this, it has a decidedly fishy stink. She says her chef likes sushi, so what? Jimmy digs further and finds out that her husband replaced her on this film with the explosion, scuttering her potential comeback. And she is indeed very bitter about it. And in the end, it seems that his ageism has saved her life. We also learn that Jimmy is not the first man to be given this job of protecting her. And Connie says, well, I hope your mouth isn't the only thing about you that's fast. The last guy was all mouth and no trousers. And Jimmy, don't worry, my trousers are my best feature. We learn the guy who Jimmy is replacing as bodyguard is also an ex-athlete, a boxer named Johnny Emanuel, who used to be on her husband's payroll. Jimmy has heard of this boxer. Uh, Apparently, he was quite the boxer back in the day. Connie says he lasted three days on the job then slunk away without even formally quitting back to the boxing gym that he owns and runs in town jimmy says and now there's me so either you or your husband's got a thing for athletic sexy black men huh and connie looks at him yes i do but in your case i'll settle for two out of three jimmy says his partner is out doing the digging and in the meantime the best thing for them to do is stay within the grounds of the mansion and connie says well fine you do that i however am going shopping and uh, she forces jimmy to take her to some fancy shops around beverly hills We cut to this, he's loaded up with bag after bag in a humorous moment, you know, taking uh, them out to the car, which is parked across the wide street opposite the store. Jimmy, as he's struggling under all the boxes and bags, lamenting his fortunes, going from football superstardom to, quote, driving Miss Crazy. On one of these trips out to the waiting car laden with the bags and hat boxes, Jimmy's attention is taken for a second by a very pretty blonde lady, Wearing a designer suit and mirrored sunglasses, her hair pulled back into a tight ponytail, passing the shop as he staggers past. He makes an appreciative comment. Damn, girl, save some of that class for the rest of us. But she blankly acknowledges that for half a beat before walking off down the street. Inside the shop now, Connie waves to Jimmy, beckoning him back from the car to go back inside to take some more of the bags. Jimmy next to the car across the road, starts to grumble again to himself. This weren't LA, I dropped those bags in the nearest puddle I found. Guess a pile of dog shit will have to do just as well. When just then, across the street, right outside the store, a car screeches up and two men in suits and shades emerge with automatic weapons. They immediately level these at the shop and those within. They open fire. People scream, the windows shatter, and one or two patrons, including a shop assistant, are hit. Connie screams and hits the deck. Across the road, Jimmy yells, no, drops the bags, and makes a sprint. Uh, The street is very wide, with many lanes and much traffic, and Jimmy runs at full speed. This is his superpower, his football training coming back, and he makes a run for the end zone. He runs flat out by zigging and zagging through the traffic, past fleeing pedestrians and other assorted obstacles. Dodges, zags, leaps, and then jumps and slides across the hood of the gunman's car. And as he comes off the car, bounces once on the sidewalk and hurls himself, colliding his body into the nearest shooter at full speed. This sends the guy flying forward through the shattered shop window to become ensnared among fallen mannequins inside. The other gunman turns his gun immediately on Jimmy, who comes up short as the guy pulls the trigger. Jimmy, oh shit! and dives out of the way as the bullets pop off the heads of the remaining mannequins and tear up the gunman's own car. Jimmy hits the ground, rolls, and takes cover. He's lying on the ground, and he's screaming at Connie, who is lying on the ground nearby, inside the shop. And Connie shouts, help me! And Jimmy shouts back, they have guns! And Connie shouts, so do you, shit for brains! And Jimmy, remembering, oh shit! And he pulls out a gun and fires rapidly at the gunman, hitting him in the chest, making him fly back into the shop to land next to his colleague. This man now comes up um, to the shop window with his gun, aiming at Jimmy. Jimmy swings his pistol on this man and pulls the trigger. But the gun now clicks empty and Jimmy, wide eyed, holy fuck. Connie has now scrambled up, grabbing one of the arms from an exploded mannequin. She takes three steps and swings the plastic arm at the back of the gunman's head. Just as he opens fire at Jimmy, the man whirls and spins, firing as he goes, the bullets tearing up the shop ceiling. But he goes down and the gun skitters away. Jimmy's up through the busted window and he tackles the gunman in an impressive leap and they both fly into a large rack of clothes. The gunman's up first and races out back onto the street into his bullet-ridden car. Connie watches all of this with wide eyes, then turns to see Jimmy, still on the floor, under the clothes rack, tangled up and struggling to see, let alone stand, with thousands and thousands of dollars' worth of designer dresses wrapped all around him like swaddling. He manages to untangle himself and springs to his feet, brandishing his empty gun, wild and disorientated, and panting, ready for a fight, but the gunman is in the car, he floors the car, which peels off down the street at top speed into oncoming traffic, making cars screech and swerve as he escapes. Jimmy, still wide-eyed and panting, looks about deranged and Jimmy says, Where'd he go? I got that sucker! And Connie, equally wide-eyed and shaken, pointing at the road carnage, he's gone. Jimmy takes a moment to digest this, looks at the dead body whom he's just shot, then looks back up the street at the fleeing car, then back at her, And Jimmy, still panting wildly, says, oh, okay, good then. And then he collapses uh, in a faint as the sounds of approaching police cars can be heard approaching. Cut, and it's back at the police station. Connie and Jimmy are met by Joe as they're released after giving their statements. And Jimmy and Joe discuss that perhaps that uh, Manny, the film mogul, wasn't so paranoid after all. Uh, Connie is shaken but she wants to stay busy or else she'll freak. So she asked Jimmy to take her to work to the TV network where she stars in the soap opera, which is called Any Day But Never Tomorrow. Uh, and Jimmy uh, says... Amazing. What makes <laughs> uh, Jimmy says, what makes you think that whoever attacked the studio won't try the same thing here? And Connie says, this is television. No one gives a shit. And Jimmy's, huh? At the studio now, the film studio, Joe goes back and tries to get some answers from Manny, the husband, studio boss. Uh, They again meet in Manny's large and plus office. Manny apologizes for the smell and they get to it. We further learn that the new studio that Manny is going to co-own will be the first brand new Hollywood studio, which has opened in almost 80 years. that Manny is sick of, quote, interference from dickless pricks with no more talent than a lizard has hats. Uh, when this new studio will open, uh, Manny will, quote, do a chaplain and own his own stuff, have creative and financial control over everything. Plus it's been constructed out in the desert on cheap land where it will supply thousands with jobs for years to come. Joe wonders if any of this can be linked and Manny says he can't think how Joe a lot of bad men are going to a lot of trouble over this makes me wonder why But Manny clams up and he says he's freaked out as well and he says you know if a if a white rich woman's not safe in Beverly Hills where the fuck is anyone safe and cut to a large factory lots of metal conveyor belts and other assorted equipment it is a fish processing plant we see thousands of dead fish moving along one such conveyor belt with many uh, older female workers standing along the conveyor belt and they were wearing hats and uh, rubber gloves and plastic white coats. uh, And they're like gutting the fish with sharp hooked knives as they move past. And at the end of the conveyor belt is a drop where the fish fall down into a massive churning rotating blade thing that pulverizes the fish, which then comes out onto another conveyor belt as paste which then moves along past more workers who remove any remaining little bones with tweezers and so forth. Uh, Overlooking all of this, a man stands, looking at the activity. He is thin, uh, in his 50s, with short hair, a neatly trimmed beard, and steel-rimmed spectacles. Uh, He is extra conspicuous, as he is impeccably turned out, wearing this immaculate suit. Everything about him is clean and polished and refined. Um, and of course surrounded by all these workers covered in fish guts, Two solid and compact looking men stand close by also wearing nice suits but not as nice as his. One more man now approaches. It is the surviving goon from the Beverly Hills shootout still dishevelled from the failed attack. His name is Timothy. Uh, So the man in the perfect attire turns and speaks softly with an accent. This His name is Magnus Bergstrom. Timothy the goon waits to be addressed, which is when uh, Magnus turns slowly and calmly appraises him and then says, Timothy, things did not go as planned. And Timothy, no, sir, she wasn't alone. He was fast. We never saw him coming. Magnus, ah, yes, the element of surprise, the strategist, most trusted friend. And Timothy, "Holt didn't make it. I barely got away myself. But she won't get lucky again. I promise you. And then Magnus interrupts. No, I promise you. And Timothy, even more nervous. I don't know who was with her, but he, Magnus, it is of no concern of yours, I assure you. The matter is in hand. Timothy, I am truly sorry, sir. It, Magnus holds up a hand and says, oh, please, Timothy, save your breath. You're needed for the screaming. Timothy looks confused for half a second when the two other large men in suits grab him roughly from behind and maneuver him over to the railing overlooking the flat factory floor and of course the fish pulverizer below. And Timothy, no, no! And he struggles and he tries to grab the railing in front of him, but the men have him firmly lift his legs and drop him head first off the gangway into the blades below. And he does indeed scream as he goes, but only for a second, we hear a nasty sound of crunching bones and wet noises and then we see the conveyor belt carrying the fish paste past the workers and all the workers stop calmly and wait as the fish paste moving past them is replaced by a much thicker and lumpier paste. And above, Magnus turns from the railing and walks away, followed by the two compact men.
0: And we cut. It's amazing. Just before the cut, let me just say, like... You always have the greatest villain dispatch lines. They're so cold and perfect. And save your breath for the screaming is right up there. And, like, I just know if anyone's ever going to kill me, I know it's you. I know it's you. I've always said it. And I know.
1: (laughs) You have always said it, interestingly
0: enough.
1: Yeah. Good stuff. I'll take that as the highest praise. Thank you. Um, Yes, yes. So um, we're cutting. So while Jimmy is staying watching Connie film some of this awful looking soap, and whilst he's waiting like behind the cameras, he avoids perhaps the advances of an older female producer. Uh, we cut to Joe, who wants answers. So He plays a hunch and seeks out Johnny Emmanuel, the ex-bodyguard, ex-boxer who left his highly paid protection job, and is now back at the renowned but seedy boxing gym, Punchy's Swagger, which he owns. Bit of boxing for you in this, actually, Jimmy. Um, There, among the sweaty bods as they train, Joe questions Johnny whilst he's sparring. Johnny is a little bit skittish and evasive, a bit nervous, despite his impressive size and build. As Joe talks to him, two bantamweight boxers from across the floor watch with interest, and we recognise those two, as the two suit-wearing men from the fish factory. Johnny evades Joe's questions, um, saying that being a bodyguard just wasn't for him, that's all, but Joe's having none of it. Uh, Under some tight scrutiny and some clever questions, Johnny lets slip that he don't play around, and now that the gym's the only place he feels safe, he can't go home, or even to Muscle Mary's, which Joe presses, Muscle Mary's, which is an outdoor bodybuilder place on Venice Beach. And Joe is like, why, Muscle Beach not safe? And Johnny acts even more skittish and tells Joe to get lost or else he'll spar with his head. And Johnny says, we'll see if you stop asking so many questions after I've knocked some brain damage into you. And Joe says, don't worry, my brain damage kicked in years ago. So Joe speaks uh, now to Jimmy on the phone and tells him to meet him at Venice Beach by the specific Muscle area that Johnny mentioned. So Connie is filming her soap, and she's surrounded by a lot of the network's uh, humorously military-esque insurance agents who will protect her as long as she's on that property. So Jimmy heads off to Muscle Beach, or Muscle Mary's, uh, on Venice Beach to meet Joe. So as Jimmy drives away from the TV network building in his BMW, he doesn't notice a car pulling out behind him starting to follow. On Venice Beach, Jimmy and Joe hook up, find Muscle Marys, and take a stroll around the oiled-up, insanely muscular bodybuilders. Joe is less than impressed with the huge men on display as they ask around. There are some Arnie jabs, and Joe says, the good Schwarzenegger, these clowns couldn't spell Arnold. And uh, Jimmy, say what you like, Joe. I'd like to see you take on one of these guys. Joe, Think I'd have a problem. Be like fighting a condom filled with walnuts. And Jimmy. Oh, sure. Just one punch from Super Joe and down they go, huh? Joe. Okay, Junior. How would you handle one such specimen? Throw a pigskin at their head? And Jimmy. It don't matter the size, Joe. Just one swift boot to the nuts, a man'll drop. And Joe. Oh, you think? The amount of steroids these babes got in them have more luck kicking two raisins and a cocktail sausage. As they walk around the hulking sweating men, one in particular clocks them, stops his weightlifting, and appraises them thoughtfully. Having turned up nothing, Joe and Jimmy are heading back to their respective cars parked across the road from the other. Uh, Venice uh, is filled with the usual sorts of bohemians and hippies, tourists, vagabonds, homeless and the like, as well as uh, many skaters, on boards and rollerblades, roller skates. And Joe says to Jimmy, you want to follow or leave your car here? And Jimmy, yeah, like I'm going to leave my 50,000 BMW opposite a man openly defecating into a sandwich bag. Uh, Jimmy, though, half trails off near the end of this, um, his attention caught by one of the skaters passing by, a very attractive lady in pink and purple lycra, wearing mirrored sunglasses and roller boots, her blonde hair, tight back and a tight ponytail. She skates past them once and Jimmy frowns, thinking for a second. Uh, at the, his car now, Joe is fishing through his keys. When ahead, the lady circles back and then speeds up, skating towards them fast down the narrow bike and skater lane between road and the beach. Uh, Jimmy stops by Joe's car, still sort of lost in thought, considering. And Joe sees this and Joe looks up and says, coming, Ace? And Jimmy turns in time to see the lady reaching into her bag, pulling out two snob-nosed Uzi nine millimetres. And he has just enough time to yell, Joe! And they both dive and duck as the lady on the roller skates speeds up at great speed with an Uzi in each hand and opens fire. They dive behind the car just in time as bullets strafe along Joe's car. The lady shoots the shit out of it as she whizzes up and then around the back of the car, opening fire and emptying the guns into the road where the two men had just been lying. But now they're gone. She frowns, looks around, and behind her down the road, uh, just in time to see Joe and Jimmy running full pelt towards Jimmy's BMW. She drops two empty magazines from the guns and reloads in the flash. She fires across the road at them, making cars swerve and crash, not caring who she hits in between them. Jimmy and uh, Joe dive over the doors into Jimmy's convertible. Jimmy floors it just as the car that followed from the TV network building pulls ahead and a gunman pops his head out of that door of the passenger side and starts opening fire. Jimmy screams in panic as he drives and swerves. Now there's a car chase around Venice Beach with this car, the skater and Joe and Jimmy in the convertible. Joe fires back at the car as they speed through other traffic, yelling as they smash through cafes, tables and chairs, patrons escaping just in time. For a moment, the pursuing car is lost when the skater girl shoots out of nowhere, firing right at Joe, who ducks, the windshield riddled. Bullets tear up Jimmy's car. Jimmy tries to get away, but she is in hot pursuit, catching up, still firing. The back of the car is now taking heavy damage as the skater is on the tail. Jimmy is like, she's going to get us! Still bent right down to avoid being hit, Joe now grabs the handbrake and pulls hard, shouting, race! As he does it, the car screeches to a dead halt and the skater girl can't stop and she flies at full speed straight into the back of the car. She hits extremely hard and violently with a bone shuddering wallop. Uh, Jimmy and Joe have half a second to recover when the pursuing car skids round the corner right in front of them, the gunner still leaning from the passenger window. Jimmy hits the gas and the car peels off, but the skater is bloody, insanely battered, in a terrible state, but alive, and she grips onto the back of the convertible and is now being pulled along behind the car on her wheels." Uh, with one bloody arm she holds tight and the other is still holding an Uzi, which she fires blindly at the back of Joe and Jimmy, who again duck down as the bullets destroy the last of the windshield, tear into the dashboard, destroy the speedometer while exploding all the upholstery. Jimmy swerves and zigzags at high speed, trying to shake her, but she's hanging on, still firing wildly out of her mind. The chase continues through the streets, Jimmy shouts, what is it with this woman? And Joe, maybe she's that last football fan you were holding out for. The skater girl's face is mangled and the hair is matted, but she is demented and looks Jimmy square in the eye through the rearview mirror. She levels the gun at the back of his head, maintaining vicious eye contact. Jimmy, oh shit! Just then, the car and the gunner shoot out in front of them, and in an unholy game of chicken, the gunner firing right at them. Jimmy turns the wheel hard, swerving the car into a massive skid across all the lanes of the road. A bus comes out of nowhere and clips the edge of the car, uh, which making the car spin even more. Uh, Jimmy and Joe both scream um, as the bus shoots past. The huge skid finally shakes loose the skater girl who flies off, losing control, hitting the asphalt and rolling over and over and over many times before stopping in the middle of the road, now lying still. The goon's car is still shooting straight for them when Joe levels his own gun straight ahead through the shattered windshield and fires in rapid succession at the goon's car as it flies at them. The driver of the other car is hit in the face, causing it to swerve, narrowly missing Joe and Jimmy. Uh, the car flies off the road and into a newspaper stand. The gunman's screaming before the impact, Uh, which sends dozens of newspapers and magazine pages high into the air as the vendor escapes in the nick of time. Joe and Jimmy now sit in their idling car for a moment, not looking at each other in a bit of a state of shock. And then Joe says, good driving, Flash. You okay, Jimmy? Ask me again when my eyes stop spinning like slut machines. Uh, Joe appraises the crashed car in the newsstand wreckage. Uh, Jimmy says, any survivors, you think? Dunno, let's go ask. So they get out and gingerly approach the car. The driver is dead. The passenger has smashed his face into the dashboard and is too clearly dead. Jimmy, no answers immediately available from them to her. Not unless anyone around here can perform a cut rate seance. There's a beat as they stand and pant. And then Jimmy says, what about Roller Girl? And they both turn and stare as across the road getting shakily to her feet is the girl. She's covered head to foot with blood. She's still, uh, she's in a really bad state, but she's still clasping one gun, which is now reloading. And she sort of blearily scans about, then sees them and looks looks onto them with an insane rage. And Jimmy shouts, holy shit, we're about to be killed by the ghost of Carrie. And she raises Yuzi right at them, While Jimmy and Joe can only stare when suddenly another bus tears through the junction and without giving Skater Girl even a second to acknowledge it, the bus plows straight into her, then over her, uh, both sets of wheels, leaving her prone and really dead in the road. And Jimmy flinches in horror and Joe just stares in numb shock and the bus breaks hard and stops. There's a moment and police sirens are now approaching. And Joe says, I guess it's true. You wait for hours, then two turn up at once. We cut. Uh, We're back to Punchy's gym. (laughs) It's closed and empty. In the back office is Johnny Emmanuel, the boxer, now dressed in street clothes, and he's closing up. He's all skittish, and he turns to hurry out the door when he smacks straight into something huge and solid and immobile, blocking his path, filling the doorway. Johnny staggers back and we see the doorway is filled with a colossal man, easily six-and-a-half-foot, blonde spiky hair, a tailor-made suit covering his insanely broad frame. And it is the bodybuilder who we saw checking them out at the Muscle Beach. And he walks in slowly, a sinister, mock-friendly smile on his face. This guy's kind of got like a baby face. And he's always kind of got a little smile going on in fact his eyes are always smiling which actually makes it worse and when he speaks though it is with a soft almost gentle voice he is thoughtful highly articulate and clearly very well educated and this is max bosco Uh, he politely chastises a clearly terrified johnny for letting slip uh to joe about Muscle Beach, and also the hangout for quote-unquote people of interest. At first, Johnny tries to deny it, but Bosco shoots out a fist like a cobra, smacks him hard in the mouth. The blow doesn't have much behind it, but it still makes Johnny reel knocking him back into his desk, his lips cracked and bleeding. Bosco says not to bother lying, he was witnessed. He says, you think we'd leave you all alone, Johnny? You've always got people watching. And he says he's come to clean a house. Does Johnny have any of those files left over? He knows he took something from the house when he was protecting uh, Connie Sedgwick. And Johnny's like, nah, man, you can check my desk. You can check my safe. And Bosco's like, yes, thanks, I have. And there's a, a long, uncomfortable pause. And then Bosco says, it's just such a shame. We really thought giving you that plum job to quote unquote protect The actress would be a no-brainer, even for you. But it seems even such a simple task was beyond your capabilities. It's embarrassing. He hits Johnny again in the stomach, making him gag and double over. Bosco continues, So I imagine this means our business is finally concluded, Johnny. So now you can relax. You are always a swell boxer, just not much of a fighter. And Bosco smiles once more and advances on Johnny, who backs up as far as he can, his eyes wide with terror as Bosco closes the door behind them. Cut back to the police station. Joe and Jimmy are bailed out of um, by, as it turns out, Connie. She meets them and says, imagine my surprise, she says to Jimmy. Uh, imagine my surprise when you didn't come to collect me after I'd finished shooting for the day. Equally imagine my total and unwavering surprise when I get a call from the cops asking to corroborate any of your insane story. Seems she doesn't want to be alone, though, that Manny is never hardly home. She doesn't really feel comfortable in that big mansion anyway. And Manny is still neck deep in this big studio deal. And Joe and Jimmy take Connie then to Joe's house, where they meet the family. Sarah meets them, and vaguely recognises Connie and is bemused. Um, Darius comes out of her room, looks up and sees Connie, her eyes pop, and she says, Holy shit, spider circus! And Connie turns to Sarah and says, People always greet me like that. So Joe, Jimmy, Sarah, Darius, and Connie now have like a family meal and somehow manage to talk and laugh and bicker and banter like they've known each other all their lives. Connie says she doesn't want to go home. She doesn't feel safe there. And Darius says kind of hopefully that she's more than welcome to stay there and can't believe it when Connie actually says, yeah, okay. So Connie clearly wasn't taking the alleged threat to her life very seriously before the attack in the shop. But now she's rattled and she's frankly changed. Gone are the trappings of the mega rich and famous. Remaining now is her core being. She's had a shower. She's in sweatpants. a little ponytail no makeup looking fresh-faced somehow younger it may be uh so now i think it's going to be the next day everyone is slightly rested and cleaned up jimmy and joe say they're off uh to end all of this uh and they leave connie with sarah and darius uh and joe says you know he's going to ask his friend at the police station to keep an eye on them and stuff but you know if they go out and to give them a call um We have now a scene at a a construction site out in the desert for this huge new studio which is being built. Manny is there in a hard hat and he's talking on his early 90s cell phone um, but he doesn't like what he's being told. He says, what do you mean you don't know where she is? I've got the movie premiere of my fucking life tonight. A set of actors burnt to a crisp and a missing wife. Yes, get on it. Find that harpy now and uh, we cut to Darius and Connie and Sarah, and they're all sitting on the couch at home, and they're watching uh, Connie's soap on TV. We see a little glimpse of it, and it is, of course, classically awful and insanely che- cheesy, with some amazing acting uh, and amazing glimpses of some ridiculous plot. Um, and uh, the three girls are sitting there sharing a large bowl of popcorn, and Connie says, not taking her eyes from the screen, you know, I turned down the Gina Davis role of an accidental tourist. And Sarah almost reluctantly says, uh, didn't she win an Academy Award for that? And there's a pregnant pause. as all three stare at the TV. And Connie says, yup. And she takes handfuls of popcorn, all three riveted on the action of the soap. Meanwhile, Jimmy and Joe go off to speak again to Johnny Emmanuel about what he knows. It's quiet as they arrive at the gym. Uh, all is dark. Um, they enter, they pass like the empty training area and so forth. But as they walk in, we again hold for a moment on a little plastic black box, which is near the back t- by the door. Um, and uh, Jimmy and Joe go into the back office and there they find Johnny beaten almost to death. He's, his face is unrecognizable and grotesque, revulsed and fighting the urge to gag. You know, sort of fist to his mouth, Jimmy backs up and leans heavily against the wall, watching behind his fist as Joe crouches down next to what's left of Johnny. And Johnny now splutters some bloody bubbles and sees Joe through his remaining eye, his cracked lips part, and he softly manages to wheeze, Joe sort of bending you know his ear right down to his mouth to hear, uh, as Johnny says, "It's in the bag, and then he dies. Uh, Joe says the injuries weren't caused by a weapon, this is uh, caused by fists. Uh, Joe backs up, uh, thinking about this, as Jimmy steals himself, moves forward now, crouches down, and gingerly puts his fingers to Johnny's throat, but finds no pulse. Jimmy, still looking at Johnny's dead body, speaking over his shoulder to Joe, who's now behind him, says, Hey Joe, who could beat someone like this to death, man? I mean, he was a trained boxer. He was good, man. Joe's considering, and then his focus shifts, and he sees the back of Jimmy's shirt, which is streaked with a yellow stain. Joe frowns, and he remembers Jimmy leaning back against the wall, so he turns, and he runs his hand over the wall, which comes back with a sort of a yellow dust on his palm. And there's a second of thought, and then his eyes widen, and Joe yells, move! And Joe runs, grabs Jimmy, and they bolt forward, not to the door, but straight at the office window. Behind them, the gym floor ignites. As in the beginning, the flame comes out of the little plastic box and spreads as if the air were combustible. And it seeps and covers the entire gym, the the entire space in seconds, engulfing everything. The wall of flame flows insanely fast towards the office as Jimmy lets himself be rushed towards the window and yells, Jesus, Joe, what the fuck? As Jimmy and Joe smash out from the office window, two floors up, as behind them, the room explodes, flames shooting out of the window after them. They sail through the air and then down the two floors to crash into the bins and waste and everything into the alley below. And they're lying there, all tangled up, and panting and bleeding as uh, the pair stay, sprawled in the alley for a second. And Jimmy's like, what the fuck, man? And Joe then says, deep in thought, to himself, Fish. And Jimmy looks at him and says, Okay, you're going to need to explain that, because we just jumped out of a window, chased by a fireball, and you said fish. Your head on straight, Joe. And Joe, everywhere we go, stinks of fish. It's a film studio. You said at the house. Now here, in the office. we well, shook Manny's hand, and it reeked of the shit. But what the fuck? And Jimmy, I don't know, Joe, the guy likes eating healthy. And Joe, there's more to all of this than just trying to kill a failed actress. And Jimmy's like, oh, you think? But then defensively, hey, Connie's got talent. And Mm -hmm. Joe, well, oh, well, excuse me, all to hell. And then a voice says, now there's a thought. And a figure stands over them. And they look up at Bosco, who smiles softly down. And Bosco says, did you find it? And Joe, what, a hat that will finally fit that fucking melon you got on top of your neck? And Bosco says, okay, never mind, I'll ask later. And he stamps on Joe's face, blackout. Joe opens his eyes as he comes to and finds himself tied to a chair. They're in the fish factory. He looks about and sees Bosco smiling at him calmly from across the metal walkway. And then Joe turns and sees Jimmy tied up next to him, also in rough shape. Uh, They're on the gangplank overlooking the the fish factory floor. Nearby are the two bantamweight goons in their suits. Jimmy sees that Joe is now awake. He says, hey, Joe, how's it going? And Joe, trying to get his bearings, is like, well, I won't lie to you, Junior. I've been better. Jimmy, hey, look, Joe, fish. And Joe nods, wincing in pain. He's like, yeah, fish. Bosco now quizzes them. Joe and Jimmy... A quiz that since they survived the gym, they might as well make themselves useful and spill if they found anything from Johnny Emanuel, like, for example, the location of a certain file. Joe says, I'd love to help you out, big boy, but I don't work weekdays. Bosco, ah, yes, your situation is much clearer to you now, Mr. Hallenbeck. Splendid. So why not take this moment instead to ask a more befitting question for a couple of renowned detectives such as yourselves? Such as, how can I give this man before me exactly what he wants and thus potentially circumvent the agonies that await? And Jimmy, shit man, the Terminator ate a dictionary. Uh, Joe, oh questions, you want questions? Oh sure, okay, in that case I've got a question. How is a head, that fucking bulbous, still attached to your fat fucking neck? Is it like a special kind of neck steroid? Or do you still have like that rod up your ass from birth, holding it in place? And Jimmy aside to Joe, again with the head, and Joe shrugging, it's all I've got. Bosco smiles wider, and then another voice speaks out. "Uh, Perhaps the time for fun and games is over at last, Mr. Hallenbeck. And uh, the man steps forward um, uh, next to Bosco, and it's Magnus Bergstrom. And Joe says, oh, great. Another bad guy. And Magnus says, the bad guy, if you please. And we get some details. Magnus is a huge drugs runner who uses the fish export import business from his native Scandinavia as the perfect means for transporting his product. But he's expanding. He's entered into a business relationship relationship with Manny uh, to increase his turnover. With the construction of this big new studio, He's gonna—he's planning to own 51% of this. This will provide the best means for shifting his goods in a hugely expand, expanded degree. Plus, the studio will be the fastest, largest money laundering operation the world has ever known. We also learned, though, that Manny apparently got cold feet about this deal. So Magnus threatened his wife and his business. And when the threat wasn't taken seriously, they exploded the studio. Manny now uh, has Manny moved Connie to keep her safe, but wasn't counting on this studio fireball massacre. And Magnus says, Hey, Fireball Massacre, a good title for a movie, yes? And Bosco smiles indulgently. Uh, A dead wife seemed to be the only thing Manny was really worried about, but this turned out to be a miscalculation on Magnus's part seems that uh, Manny wasn't really that worried about his wife at all, but more about the release of this big new film, which a scandal could derail and scupper the plans for the studio. Jimmy says, you expect us to believe the man cares more about a movie than his fucking wife? And Manny, uh, Manny's voice now rings out, and uh, he says, so what's so hard to believe about that, Jimmy? A scandal's a publicist's worst nightmare. And so now, Manny Pantango enters. seems now, though, after all of this uh, stuff, he has rethought and he is going to do a deal with Magnus. He struck a new deal, and right there and there, he signs a contract in front of them, giving Magnus his 51% of the future studio. Manny says, this new studio will finally give me control of the whole ball game: Movies, TV, merchandise, spin-offs, soundtracks. It worked for Chaplin. It worked for Lucas. Hell, it worked for me, even a 49%. Joe, except Chaplin didn't massacre his co-workers to make a point. Manny says, well, that we know of. And anyway, I didn't want that to happen, but it did. Mr. Magnus has talked me into it, you might say. Now, Magnus says, the only thing stopping him from owning 100% are the remaining studio bosses who were planning on joining Manny in this whole studio operation, who all own a share of the new studio, who conveniently have all been invited and will be attending this big movie premiere tonight. The movie, by the way, I thought might be called something like Robots of Lust, but that might be, that's even maybe too cheesy. So maybe it's just got a, like a kind of a bland name, like because it is actually like a big budget thing, like Robot Moon or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so if something were to happen, these movie executives and studio owners at this premiere tonight then the whole lot will revert to uh, magnus and he will earn he will own everything Manny turns to joe and jimmy and says i've said it before and i'll say it again ain't nobody negotiates with a swede and magnus says i'm norwegian the only remaining matter are certain files relating to the chemistry makeup uh, of the so far untraceable flammable yellow powder uh, if that becomes public all assets will be frozen as sabotage can be proved johnny emmanuel stole such files before fleeing his job not having the stomach as it turned out for murder of connie um and he thought taking the files would protect him it did not and joe says yeah no shit Meanwhile, uh, we see that Joe has slipped uh, a thin blade out from behind his watch, um, concealed up his sleeve. Uh, And as the others talk, he starts to painstakingly cut through the rope, binding his wrists behind his back. Magnus is going to incinerate the attendees of that night's premiere. All the guests, all the actors, all the studio chiefs. Magnus now stops and pauses as if he's just remembered. Oh, yes. And one other attendee. Isn't that right, Mr. Pantanego? And Manny says, oh, certainly. What's What good's a premiere without all of the stars? Know what I mean, Jimmy? And Jimmy suddenly realizes and the penny drops. And Jimmy says, Connie? You mean Connie? And Manny says, certainly. You forget, Jim, we're husband and wife. Soon, as soon as she knew she'd be staying out, she gave me a call. You know, so I wouldn't worry. She's considerate like that. And you know how considerate, even though she didn't really want to, she really wanted to give the whole palaver a miss. while I talked her into accepting how important it would be for the movie and the studio and me for her to attend the premiere, too. So guess what? You won't have to worry about her missing you, because soon enough, she ain't going to miss a thing. And Jimmy struggles frantically against his bonds, but they are holding fast. Joe's thin blade keeps working at the ropes behind his back. Magnus, Bosco, and Manny now turn to leave. And Joe calls out, Manny, you're really going to let your wife die like that? Manny stops, turns around, and says, Hell, Joe, this is Hollywood. I'll just get another. And they leave, leaving Jimmy and Joe with the two bantam goons. Outside the uh, the fish factory, uh, the the villains move to their cars. Magnus says, come. We'll go together, all to all together. We'll need your face, Mr. Pantanego, to obtain access. So they get in Magnus's car, Bosco behind the wheel, and they drive away. Inside, the two bantamweights interrogate Jimmy and Joe. Joe continues to slowly but surely cut through the vines. They hold Jimmy now by the legs and dangle him over the gangway, over the flashing fishy blades below, uh, with Jimmy freaking out, being like, Oh, shit! And they're like, tell us what you know, Joe. Tell us what you know. Where's the file, Joe? And Joe's like, "Okay, okay. I'll tell you where the file is. Just let him go. And Bantam Goon says, you got it, pal. And they're about to drop Jimmy face first into the blades when Joe finally cuts the last of the rope and is on his feet. The goons drop Jimmy. He screams but catches the edge of the railing with his foot hanging upside down now over the blades. Jimmy has a fist fight with the two boxers. They kick his ass. Working in tandem, they work Joe over, who gets in some good hits, but he doesn't really have much style or skill, frankly, uh, in terms of boxing. Uh, and these two boxers are very good. Their boxing style is excellent, their form is fine, and working together, they move in on Joe like hyenas on a lion. Joe is hit from all sides, is punched once more, hard in the face, and goes down. The goons stand over him gloating. Joe spits blood and then looks up at them, smiling, and says, I've got to hand it to you guys. I haven't taken a shot in the mouth like that since grade school. The pair pause a second and laugh. Still upside down, Jimmy reaches through the railings and grabs the nearest goon's legs whilst he's distracted. Jimmy pulls hard and the goon falls, Jimmy now hanging from this goon's feet. Before the second goon can react, Joe's up and plows into him. They fight. Jimmy uh, is meanwhile slipping closer to the blades, the goon scrabbling and trying to kick him free, kicking, kick him free. But Jimmy hangs on and pulls this goon over the edge too. So now the goon is hanging by his hands from the gangway, with Jimmy hanging from his legs, slipping down his body lower, his feet now inches from the whirring fishy blades. <clears throat> Above, Joe fights the other goon, hummeling him with no finesse, but savage blows do the trick and Joe's resilience and just oomph do the job and the goon falls over the edge of a railing and down into a huge fat of fish guts where he struggles for a second, then is sucked down with a kind of a (laughs) noise until he is submerged and dead. Jimmy pulls himself up the body of the hanging goon, stretching for the edge of the gangway, when the goon's fingers finally slip. And just as he falls, Joe rushes over and grabs Jimmy's arm so that the goon falls past him, screaming into the blades uh, with Jimmy dangling above. Joe pulls him up and they stand leaning on the rail, looking down at the gore below. Jimmy, panting, then says, pasted sucker. And there's a pause and he looks at Joe for approval. And Joe looks at him and says, You've been working on those, ain't you, Slick? And Jimmy, every night in the mirror, Holmes. And they race out of the factory. Cut to the premiere. Glitzy as fuck. Gala event. Uh, paparazzi and schools of fans. Crowd either side of the red carpet as assorted Hollywood royalty strut and wave. Manny is waving to the crowds there, but they're all mainly ignoring him. And he makes it as far as the main entrance to the cinema. Um, but then he slips out a side exit and hurries away. Back to the factory, Manny has left his car behind, so Jimmy and Joe steal it. Driving very fast, Joe and Jimmy tear through the city. In the car, Joe is driving, and he hands Jimmy the the handpiece from the car phone and tells him to call Detective Walsh, his friend from the from the Hollywood homicide, with instructions. And Jimmy's like, he's never going to believe you, man and Joe, he doesn't have to he just has to do one thing Uh, they reach the premiere inside the glove box uh, they find Manny's ID and pass and they use this to get round the side away from the red carpet and so on uh, and in through a side door there's a large bouncer there but but the pass works and he recognises Jimmy uh, but he asks who the friend is and Jimmy is like you don't recognise this guy? he's a Drakey Duke Stunt man to the stars and the bouncer looks at Joe skeptically and says Stuntman, huh? And Joe tries to smile half-heartedly, and Jimmy's like, sure, look at that face. What else could he be? And the bouncer agrees and lets them in. And they race inside. <laughs> That's the, the massive... best line of the movie. <laughs> <laughs> and they race inside uh, the massive theatre. Joe says to Jimmy, Stuntman to the stars and Jimmy. Be thankful. It was either that or the Elephant Man. They race up the, uh, the decidedly less glamorous back stairway and burst to the upper landing of the massive movie theatre. Uh, the upper landing and the, the upper floor is all empty, with the crowds and guests all piling into the main auditorium below. The upper stools are overlooking the throng, and the massive screen is opposite, with the curtains still down, as the stars are still arriving out the front. Uh, Jimmy and Joe are scanning around. Jimmy runs his hand over the edge of the balcony and it comes away yellow and powdery. And Jimmy says, shit, man, we're too late. And Joe says, not yet, we ain't. Joe says that Bosco's is going to be setting up the fire igniters. We've got to find him. Jimmy is distracted, however, because he's hanging back and he's now looking through the huge windows out down into the street below at the assembled press and guests and stars who are all arriving, and his face turns ashen. And Jimmy says, that ain't the half of it, man. And Joe looks and sees arriving below on the street is Connie looking glamorous in an amazing dress, talking to a reporter as the camera flashes go off. And Joe says, we'll warn her. And Jimmy says, not just her. Sorry, man. She bought a guest. And Joe, "Huh? Who? And Jimmy, take a guess." Uh, And Joe stares out the window as below we see Connie take a sidestep revealing her date and it's Darius. And she's wearing a nice simple frock and looking very starstruck and insanely happy. Uh, And Joe, motherfucker, Jimmy says he'll find Bosco in the igniter. Joe can get down there and warn Connie and Darius. But Joe rushes off. Jimmy hunts about uh, the bear and basic. Workman like corridors and fire escapes and so forth behind the plush upper level. Uh, He finds, like, sort of like bits of paraphernalia and scaffolding, and he gets a large metal pipe um, and takes it with him. He rounds a corner, and Jimmy comes face to face with Bosco just as he's setting up the third and final igniter, uh, the little black plastic box which he's securing to the wall. And he turns and sees Jimmy and smiles broadly. And Bosco says, hey, you're not dead. And Jimmy, in a tough guy voice, says, not yet, pal. And then sort of catches himself and says, wait. Uh, And then Bosco advances on Jimmy, surprised that he's alive, but happy he's there to have someone to kill face to face. Bosco says the proportion of the flames is impressive. Uh, The living flame is one thing and wonderful to behold. But in my experience, there's nothing so grand as to see a man's lights go out as I extinguish his flame. Jimmy then reveals his big metal pipe and says, extinguish this, motherfucker. But Bosco moves like lightning, catches the pipe uh, and smacks it from Jimmy's hand and punches Jimmy hard in the chest. Jimmy flies back, gagging, trying to breathe. And Bosco's like, oh, and he tosses the pipe away and he says, this will be too easy. And Jimmy, oh yeah, I'll say that again, in a false settle. And he takes a step forward and kicks Bosco in the nuts as hard as he can. Bosco reacts for half a second, then grins at Jimmy, grabs his foot and flips him back end over end to crash on the floor face first. Jimmy scrambles up as Bosco advances, still smiling, and Jimmy to himself says, damn, Joe, you were right. He tries a punch at Bosco, but it bounces off his huge train. Bosco hits Jimmy once, and he goes down hard. Meanwhile, Joe gets downstairs, reaching the packed lobby, standing out horribly among the immaculately, immaculately dressed royalty of Tinseltown. Standing on the fourth step, overlooking the crowd in the main foyer, he looks to his right, and across the throng sees Connie and Darius as they enter the main auditorium, both chatting happily with each other. Joe makes to move, but then sees on his left, Magnus darting out the back. There's a plastic box attached to the wall where the, next to the door where he goes. Joe is anguished and torn, but he makes a decision and darts left after Magnus. Upstairs, Jimmy is picked up and thrown through some swinging doors uh, back into the empty seating upper level. He lands badly and tries to scramble up, but he's in bad shape. Bosco comes in after him, grabs Jimmy by the collar, lifts him up, ignoring the apparently feeble blows that Jimmy's landing on him, Bosco punching him twice in the face. Bosco says, and to think I thought these premieres would be dull, and he throws Jimmy right across the the room to land badly again on on the empty seats. Downstairs, Magnus is now backstage behind the vast cinema screen, and he's heading for a fire exit. Joe steps out behind him and calls out, Hey, dickhead, what's your hurry? Film doesn't start for another ten minutes, depending on if they show previews. In that case, 18. Magnus turns and says, You astound me, Mr. Hallenbach. You came. And, he, and then he pulls out a gun and points it at Joe. And Joe says, Likewise, I had you pegged as someone who likes to keep his hands clean. You're not the guy who does the grunt work usually, huh? And Magnus says, Yes, well, alas, you seem to have killed everyone I can trust with such a task. But it's not so bad. And then he does a stage whisper. I think I saw Julia Roberts. And Joe's like, so now what? You've set the devices, and now you're just going to shoot me and leave? Don't you think that'll draw attention? Magnus, same reason I've lasted so long in this business. No one suspects a Norwegian. And Joe nods, considering. And then, you forgot one thing, mind. Magnus cocking the gun and he says, Oh yes, enlighten me, do. And Joe says, You got it, pal. And he holds up the plastic igniter which Magnus left on the door, and he tosses it across to Magnus, who reflect you know, with reflex just catches it. And there's a moment and it sprays out a puff of this yellow powder into Magnus's chest and face. He splutters and takes off his glasses, now looking like a yellow panda. And he looks at Joe and slow realization dawns, and Joe then says, light him if you got him, and the igniter clicks and sparks, and Magnus's eyes go wide, and then the flame comes out of the box and utterly engulfs Magnus's top half. Uh, a screaming Roman candle now, Magnus spins and fires the gun in agony, the bullets going wide, missing Joe and ducks. On the other side of the curtain, uh, some of the guests are taking their seats, and they look about vaguely at the gunshots that they can hear, with two or three bullets puncturing through the screen and the curtain, but going high harmlessly. And then all the, uh, the the guests all sort of shrug and continue to take their seats. Then Magnus runs out right in front of the curtain onto the stage in front of everyone, in front of the assembled glitterati, who find this flaming, screaming man still firing his gun blindly into the air harder to ignore. Connie and Darius are just about to take their seats and they stop and stare. Above all of this, in the otherwise empty stools, Bosco too sees this and his smile for once leaves his face. And he goes, no. Uh, Magnus down there screams more as he tears about, setting the curtain, uh, covering the screen ablaze. This sets up the sprinklers, which rain gallons of, down of, you know, gallons of water down on everyone. Um, Most of the guests, by the way, are seemingly more annoyed and distressed by their ruined suits and gowns than the screaming man burning to death in front of them. And he screams once more, and then the liquid flame rises up like a column and consumes him utterly, and he drops down dead. The sprinklers douse his remains, as well as everything else all over the building. Uh, Cops now are swarming uh, everywhere as the guests and uh, famous people are all fleeing. Still in the upper stools, Jimmy is on the floor, all bloody and shit, but he sees all of this and he manages to smile through his busted mouth. And Jimmy says, oops, no dead studio heads for you, which honestly I have mixed feelings about. Bosco is now enraged and he screams and advances on Jimmy uh, who's battered and is trying to crawl away. Bosco grabs the igniter that he planted up there and brandishes at Jimmy. And Jimmy's like, give it up, man, no escape. And Bosco says, and neither I think for you. The powder's on the seats, it's on the walls. We'll go up together, all of us, you, me, them, indicating the cops who are now coming through the doors to the upper stalls, all loaded with shotguns. Bosco goes, and them, and then uh, he says, indicating the guests below, including Connie and Darius, But then he turns back to Jimmy and says, but especially you. And he holds the igniter and triumphantly clicks it and it sparks. And Jimmy stares and flinches, but nothing happens. The sprinklers are still going nuts and everything is drenched. And Jimmy says, oops again, nuts. Sorry to rain on your parade. Bosco looks at the sodden igniter with anguish, then crushes it in his hand and screams and rushes at Jimmy. The cops who have now swarmed in on both sides of the stall seats open fire, the shotgun blasts smash into Bosco as he flies back, taking hit after hit, and then he goes off the back, backwards off the balcony, falls down and smashes into the now empty seats below. And as the cops now swarm around him, Jimmy holds up his hands to surrender, but the cops lower their guns and one rushes over and says, sir, are you all right? Jimmy says, damn, this is not my usual experience with you guys. You're not mistaking me for like Denzel, are you? And they help him up and lead him out. And below, outside, limos are tearing away in panic. Their A-listers are huddled and freaking out inside. Joe staggers out, and then so does Jimmy. And they're outside on the red carpet. They're met first by Connie, who rushes to Jimmy and hugs him, making him wince after his pummeling. And then Darius, who runs to Joe and hugs him too. And Joe says, you like the movie, honey? And Darius, it was no spider circus. And Joe's like, sure, what is? Uh, There's a tiny time lapse and is now mainly empty outside the entrance to the cinema. And now on the red carpet are cops and ambulances and fire crews, Joe and Jimmy and Connie and Darius. And Joe turns to Jimmy and he says, You really said sorry to rain on your parade? And Jimmy, hey, man, I told you, I've been practicing. Then Detective Walsh arrives, closely followed by uh, the captain, Belasso. Belasso says to Joe, okay, explain this one, Joe, and make it fast, or you're the first one I'll bust. And Joe turns to Detective Walsh and says, Detective, Walsh holds up a thick paper file, slightly charred, but in one piece. Walsh says, was right there where you said it'd be, Joe, inside the remains of Punchy's gym, in the third punching bag we looked in, melted on the outside, snug as a bug on the inside. And Joe, they will tell you most of it, Captain, the formula to the yellow powder, and I suspect the names and paper trails of all those involved, including your husband, Miss Sedgwick. I'm sorry. And Connie says, me too. But not surprised. Bessaro is flicking through this big file and he says, Well, I'll be a son of a bitch. And Joe, smiling, all your life. Jimmy takes a moment and then nods. Um, and Jimmy to Joe, It's in the bag, huh? And uh, Joe says, Johnny was a thinker after all. And Jimmy, is suddenly remembering, But oh shit, what about Manny? And Bessaro says, He won't get far. With this baby holding the file, he's banged to rights, and he hurries off. A moment with Darius still hugging Joe, and Connie still hugging Jimmy, and Connie says, so what now, Jim? And Jimmy, well, I don't know about you, but I was thinking hospital. And Connie, yeah, I was thinking more like your place or mine. And Jimmy kind of takes a moment to digest this, and then Jimmy, damn, damn, okay, okay. And he lets himself be carried well half carried away by connie towards a waiting limo and joe calls out hey connie jimmy best make it his i have a feeling your place might be out of bounds for a while cut to connie and manny's mansion manny hurries in in a panic rapidly opening his safe and filling a bag with wads of cash and passport etc takes the bag hurries to the door turns and takes one last look at the huge entrance hall and the open area beyond. And Manny says, piece of shit place anyway. And he turns um, to open the door, but then notices next to this is a small black plastic box, which starts to make a fizzing noise. Manny sees this, takes it in and says, fuck me, never trust a Swede. And the room explodes in a massive fireball. And it's a few days later, a sunny day, We're in Joe's back garden. Joe is tending a barbecue, holding a beer. Also gathered is Sarah, Jimmy, Connie. Off to the side is Darius with Mike, who is desperately wanting to go over and say hi to Connie. And Mike says to Darius, but I have posters for her to sign. And Darius, yeesh, play it cool, dickwad. And she pulls him in for a kiss. Uh, By the barbecue, holding tongs, Joe sees this and says, Oh, no, and goes to intervene, but Sarah catches his arm and smiles at him and says, I think one kiss is okay, detective. Joe reluctantly turns back to the barbecue. Okay, but more than that, I'll show him what this skewer is for, and he holds up a kebab on a stick. Jimmy and Connie come over hand in hand, and Sarah says, well, don't you both make the pair? And Connie says, I like to think we'll be making more than that. And she smiles at Jimmy suggestively. And Jimmy doesn't know how to take it. So he just says, damn. And now, alone at the bottom of the garden, Joe and Jimmy take a break from the festivities and sit on a little stone step, each with a bottle of beer. And there's a moment of easy silence between them. And Joe says, happy Ace? And Jimmy says, like a great man once told me, happiness is just like anything else. One day at a time. And Joe, smart advice, he takes a swig of beer and says, So what now? Still up for this life of high adventure? Or are you ready to settle down? And Jimmy says, I don't know, Joe. Is it greedy to want both? And Joe, nah. Just remember, if it gets too hot, Jimmy says, then turn it over. And Joe, attaboy, Jimmy. Attaboy. And Saturday Night at the Movies by the Drifters starts to play, <laughs> and the credits roll, and that's the end. And tagline, make a play, take the shot, and don't miss. Oh. The last Boy got too. Perfect
0: last song there, shit. Holy shit. Holy um, shit. <laughs> You've got so many lovely lovely 90s vibes there. I think you really (laughs) aced Jimmy as well, like from Driving Miss Crazy and like amazing (laughs) Julia Roberts quip, amazing Denzel quip at the end there as well. Just, oh, I love like even just when they're in the dumpster and your chocolate milkshake man comes along and says, did you find it? And I sort of hear it like by Bardem in No Country for Old Men, like really creepy, ah. and like, oh, I really like that line for some reason. <laughs> and the bad guy, thank you very much, is a lovely line. Like, Sheppy, I mean, your supporting characters have fucking arcs, man. Like, it's just extraordinary. I just, I don't know what point, I you just need to mute your ears for a second. Like, I don't know what point, like, I need to just acknowledge the genius and just sort of... I don't know. I don't know. I need to push you. Into, I, I don't. I need to. I need to think about it. Like I need. To, I need the listeners to know. Bottom line, I will I almost will publish our messenger chat for. It, to be honest, because Sheppy definitely said that was an hour and forty-ish. I don't know broadly, but it was about the length of the Last Boy Scout, mm-hmm. which is wonderful. I'm not complaining. It was a treat. It was a treat, as I'm sure anybody that's listening will agree. But our agreement was that Sheppy had told me five yes. pages. Yes. And I thought, yes. woohoo, I'm actually not going to look like I'm taking the piss and not re- rising to the brief this time. And unfortunately, dear listeners, what you're about to hear is a fucking well, shadow. Look, uh, well, and let me counter even... <laughs> that. No, no,
1: let me counter that just by saying my problem is I have no restraint. It's not your problem. You do <laughs> what we're meant well, to my... do
0: it's my benefit i love it i feel very lucky that you have no restriction <laughs> but um, yeah amazing but don't, well, look that was just i'm going to just say okay it but don't I, don't
1: say anything negative about yourself man because all of your pictures are amazing and they are no, exactly no, right no. No, so just no. because they're not an hour and 40 minutes long that doesn't mean they're in any way lesser and i mean that oh, and, I you, and i don't i want to just, and
0: i promise you know, i'm not it. fishing for it either you know blah blah blah. and i love you i want you to know i love you i'm so grateful that was fucking brilliant so many little blackisms. you got so many lovely beats and lines it was just bloody wonderful just bloody wonderful i love it okay okay chefs um Thanks. we've got so we got some similarities as well going on by the way oh, which I love is interesting that. interesting so um I, I love that you went with the movie industry, by the way. I thought it was perfect. That's really cool. And like, and you're reusing lots of LA iconography there around Muscle Beach and all that stuff. And like it's just it's really nice. And the premiere at the end or whatever, like that is brilliant. And you you basically mimic the audience reaction stuff as well with the clothes gateway where instead of like you know, the ooze were basically matched with that. Like lots of and, and I don't I I'm a I'm a fan, by the way, if a sequel has similar echoes and beats. And I loved your fish paste and then calling that back like a Bond movie or something with a piranha tank like it was just wonderful to have that you know play out twice um as a as an area for action to take place it was wicked and like you know just yeah man i love i love it love it love it um yeah lots to lots to love lots to love but i i suppose i i need to come back at you um with something ships so just before i get to it i will say a couple of quickies one i thought there was an interesting thread i didn't pull um around the fact that there's this sort of sports gambling thing which is so like early 90s around that first one like around yeah. you know the, the the fact that it's kind of really ruining the game and everything and now with online betting like we're just in another bloody level that you never would have seen coming in 1991 i, I love it like it's crazy um and, and and it almost tempted me to do a proper like set now you know or, or maybe a few years back when bruce was still working and um and I think um like you know that that would have been a line to pull. Maybe I didn't. And I meant to set it at Christmas and forgot to, and all that sort of stuff. But um, <laughs> uh, what has emerged, Sheppy, is sort of a little bit of a cross between Lethal Weapon 2 and Lethal Weapon 3. And then nice. I, I say that like that it gets fluffier and it's cru- I put here crucially a 15. <laughs> um, <laughs> and um and it's directed by Tony Scott in terms of tone and stuff again and all that vibe. Last Boy Scout 2 as well. I couldn't think of a better pun than that. Really, or to go with like first girl scout or any stupidity like just that's just boom, boom, boom. We know where we are.
1: This Rowleys, is... <laughs> yeah.
0: leading to the IP, I reckon. Um, it this I need to just say final caveat that this derails Sheppy. Like you know Park Mead style. Yes, a very dense beginning that makes you quite proud of, and then, uh, and then <laughs> it the just falls apart. And I'll tell you why and how, and I think I'm just going to eyeball you from my little uh, notes here. I'm going to tell you, this is the most Park mead I think, so far. (laughs) I'm just telling you, it's Crocodile Dundee in L.A. almost style at the end. Let's just leave it at that, yeah. That's joyous. So, (laughs) Bruce is back as Joseph Cornelius Hallenbeck. We've got Damon Wyans back as Jimmy Dix. Chelsea fielded Daniel Harris back as Sarah and Darian, respectively, really very little to do as well, unfortunately. I sort of assumed I'd bring him in more, and I didn't. Now, here we go, Sheps, for what I think is the most 90s cast I've ever assembled. We've got... Ke- I'm, and I'm really just going to la- lean into their, um, their, their names, being their names a bit, like, to keep it easy, you know, in terms of characters and whatnot. Yeah. So Kevin Pollack is playing a character called Polly. Ray Liotta is in there as Ray Marcon. Tom Sizemore as Sizey. (laughs) Brilliant. (laughs) (laughs) I wrote this like four days ago. I haven't looked at it again since. I'm sorry. There's going to be some surprises for me. Um, (laughs) um, We've got. Mikelty Michelet- Williamson who's uh, playing Senator Williamson not that that really means anything because uh, you wouldn't necessarily know his name um but he's the guy that plays Bubba in Forrest Gump yeah, right. um we've got and so it's a new senator so it's sort of like a let's say three years on by the way i love i i also in a moment i'm gonna start on a steakhouse, chefs. but i love nice. that you started with the steakhouse at the cinema it's just perfect in terms of the motif you have with the movies and just the vibe and brilliant anyway um but yeah then here we go here we go okay uh robin gibbons is in as um i was gonna call her robin williamson um because she is related to the senator. Um, but you know, of course, as the comedian that we have to worry about with a name like that. But anyway, there we go. Robert Williams ah, is in it. So okay. Robin Givens is in it and um hot of Boomerang. And then we've got Hugh Grant in it as well. Oh Um, this is nineteen ninety-five. I don't know if I said that before. Last Boy Scout too. Tony Scott, yada yada. Um, but this is just coming hot on Four Weddings. Like they they filmed yeah. it, I reckon, just after he'd filmed Four Weddings and then they just explodes like yeah they've, they've got Hugh Grant in this supporting role and yet what what, what yeah. luck um he feel... did
1: this instead of the Englishman who went up the hill and came down a mountain
0: <laughs> yes and we're all happier <laughs> about it funny <laughs> <Oddly laughs> enough I'm just reading that Alan Rickman biography have you read it the diary oh, thing, no, yeah no. Brilliant. and um and he's just filming Sense of Sensibility and He's having dinners with Hugh Grant, and Hugh Grant is really interested in everyone's points and percentages and keeps asking everybody Uh, so I thought it was quite interesting. Oh, that's Um, funny. um, All right, here we go, Sheffield. I've even written you a song. Here we go. So we get a (laughs) jaunty, rocky opener from Bill Medley, Real Name Medley, called LA Summer (laughs) Heat. And I've said, oh, imagine gosh. a Baywatch summer style music video, Santa Monica beach vibes, you know, real like you know, Ooh. and super jaunty, like the beginning of Last Boy Scout. And here's the song, <laughs> God. Um LA <laughs> Summer Heat, take the top down, you can't compete. LA Summer Heat. Upside that frown, I'll save you a seat. LA Summer Heat. Go in the town on the July beat. And then we cut to real life and it's pissing with rain and Venice Beach. (laughs) Funnily enough, Muscle Beach area as well. Car is parked opposite a bar. Inside the car, Hallenbeck and Dix are on stakeout. And the Dix says, and Jimmy says, Senator's making me impatient. And uh, Joe says, making you impatient? And Jimmy says, hey, I'm the king of discipline. And Joe says, I don't know. I saw some pretty hasty distribution back in the day. I got more completed passes than you've had showers. uh, Joe just says, not the highest bar. uh, Dick smiles. (laughs) And they look back at the bar and just goes, I'm disappointed, man. I thought Williamson was one of the good guys. And Hallenbeck says, you're into this gig. You still think there's some good guys out there? And Dick says, Easter Serino. And pats his stomach and just says, thinking burritos. And uh, Joe says, no fucking Mexican. And he goes, you racist motherfucker. What's <laughs> racist about picking jalapenos? Oh, hello, hello, sorry. <laughs> goes, What's racist about picking jalapenos out of the stick? And, uh, and Jimmy just goes, you get your tape deck working, then you can complain about my damn jalapenos. The Willis looks in his rear mirror. A battered blue Chev Corvette Stingray is parked about 100 yards behind them and his eyes narrow, Brucey style say dick works fine you know you could and jimmy says you know you could do with spicy things up a bit joseph when i picked picked you up this afternoon i looked in the living room and sarah turned off the tv a bit too quick and joe just says you think maybe a program finished i don't think she finished anything in a long time and the two men laugh dick packs the (laughs) stomach again i'll roll us a sub or something jimmy leaves the car covers his head with his jacket to protect from the rain, crosses the road, and instead of heading off for food, enters the bar, and Hallenbeck says, son of a bitch, I was actually hungry. Mm. Inside the bar, Senator Williamson, our man Bubba, very well-dressed in suit, is in a corner booth with an attractive young lady, um, slightly less well-dressed. She looks very upset. Um, The the bar is medium-busy. Jimmy takes a seat at the bar, gets a whiskey, keeps an eye on the senator and the younger lady. This is Robin Givens. And um, and we just hear off screen someone say, hope you left a crack in the window for Hallenbeck. And this is Tom Sizemore on Dix's left. And Dick says, he needed a piss. Left him tied to the lamppost. And Sizemore laughs. Pro football at a private dick, eh? That's a trajectory. And uh, Jimmy says, rush me all you like. I can pass you through this bar. That and Sizemore just goes relax relax I'm just busting your balls who's paying you to spy on my guy and Hallenbeck um uh his voice comes from behind Sizemore and says that's privilege and uh Sizemore says Joey Jesus look at you cleaned up I should have mentioned Willis is uh he's still a bit scruffy but he's shaved he's more diehard three Brucey like you know what I mean he's (laughs) a little bit cleaner um and he's like, hey, Tommy. And so they they embrace, they were on the same presidential detail back in the day. Um, let me guess. Mrs. Senator W commissioned you boys for that. And Dixon Hellenbeck stay silent, don't answer Sizemore. And uh Sizemore continues, Senator's been on long hours, and this he you nods know, towards the booth. This doesn't help. And Hellenbeck just says, Sister, right? Sizemore gives it a shaky point and He goes, <laughs> Williamson gets lucky you're the one Joey some schmo and you're looking at a cheap shop for the inquirer of my guy with a mistress or some shit and Hellenbeck just says estranged and Seisman says two years trying to break it off with some crazy fucker and uh Jimmy just says how do you call that one so fast Joe and Joe just goes well for starters his ring's still on his finger and Hellenbeck gets himself a poor as well and he goes, our clan will be very happy that your clan isn't about to get balls deep. And Jimmy smiles, constituents too, for that. And the pair smile and just say to happy endings and clink. And uh, so I anyway, as soon as they've clinked, uh, the the mood changes and guns are blazing. The psycho partner of Robin Givens, Senator Sister, enters the bar. And um the uh, we, now i'm saying this guy's going to be played by fresh off beauty and the beast ron perlman as a little surprise <laughs> to keep the sons of aggie, aggie adiky tiggy vibes going sheppy says so ron perlman <laughs> is robin given's partner who's a lunatic and enters arms looking for trouble and all i've put here is a bit of slow-mo flashy scotty glass shattery chaos and williams and wyans um, managed to disarm Ron Perlman and pin him with a bit of wit and coolness and teamwork <laughs> with Sizemore. Um, Willis is kneeling on Perlman's back, cuffs him with his spare set that he happens to have on him, and stands. Underestimating Perlman, who immediately springs up and cuffed, runs for the door. Willis sighs and whines, takes a glass from the bar and launches it quarterback style. It arcs through the air and catches Perlman before he makes the door knocking him out cold. Sizemore gives Wyans a respectful nod and just says, trajectory. There's a little moment um, with the Senator Bubba thanking the pair. Um, nice charisma and energy. And the Senator is proper, like, you know, he's the man, like, you know, he's he's the one you want, the great hope for the city, you know. Um, he's aware of Willis from his heroics at the Super Bowl. And um, and Sizemore then, you know, exits with him and, and shepherds him out the back door. Wyans has through his heroics caught the eye of Robin and offers to walk her home. And outside, uh, Alan Beck just says, don't do anything I wouldn't do. And Jimmy Wyatt gives him an amazing, almost Beverly Hills Cop banana vendor, incredulous, campy look, and just goes, oh, Joe, we're going to do everything you wouldn't do. <laughs> and anyway, mm-hmm. keeping the banana vendor vibes, um, and Beverly Hills Cop montage, almost Willis, and clocks that Corvette again, walks over to it, um, it's empty. He pulls out his cigarettes um, and the wrapping from the paper, scribbles something on it, bends to laces and tucks the paper into the tailpipe. Sets off in his motor and our credits that sort of started with our LA summer heat and now finish with this with a directed by Tony Scott as Willis pulls up into an all-night uh, sort of cafe diner. He gets a coffee and waits um, uh, until the Corvette enters the car park and parks in the corner of the park kevin pollock gets out of the car schlubby usual suspects mechanic style pollock vibes <laughs> he enters the diner and in the booth next uh, to uh, to our hellenbeck and um, sits down and the pair are like back of the head to back of the head and classic classic um you know mm. not very subtle um, situation. <laughs> and, um, and hellenbeck says you're taking commissions south of frisco now and uh, pollock says joe i'd never muscle your patch we all got, but we've all got soccer boots to pay for, and um, and uh, just says, "Yet your Corvette was camped on Venice," and uh, and um, the 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 uh, <laughs> Pollock just says, "The guys that asked me," and he sort of gulps and he goes, "Me, they give me this mark," and he checks the other patrons and the waitress, and with his left hand, Pollock hands a little Manila folder round the corner uh, of the booth. And Hallenbeck takes it, opens it, and his eyes react. And he says, handsome guy. The camera pans around, and it's a picture of Hallenbeck. And um, Pollock just says, I'm risking everything here, Joe. And Joe just goes, thank you. And, uh, he goes, who was it? There's no name. Just a call and a wire transfer. 50% up front for info, details. I had to give him anything on Sarah or Darian, Joe. Willis takes another sip of coffee and goes, you better get out of here. Pollock does leave, and we see him sheepishly skittle across the car park into the Corvette, turn the ignition, and classic Tony Scott flip car explosion. Only it's got some nice, um, I put 18, even though I've rated it 15, for your eyes only vibes, that Pollock's charred corpse does hang out a little after one of the windows. Anyway, I, don't know why I put that detail. is really this. No, that's great. <laughs> we get the blue and red lights of the cops. Willis is there. Wyans has broken off his little engagement with Robin and has joined him. And um, and and sorry, I keep going Wyans, Jimmy, but we all get it. And, and, and so Jimmy's like, you know, you know, there are a lot of car bombs in your life, man. You ever thought about riding a bike? Cue the most incredulous look Willis has ever given anyone in a film. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and uh and jimmy just says what is this man this guy a friend or something and joe just goes known him 30 years it's personal and uh, and that's the setup sort of um willis and Wayne then baited and they look into the bank account transfer Let's say that daughter Darren does have a little bit to do here. She is a bit of a hacker whiz at this point. She's all into her computers 1995 style, and she's able to help them um, in a way that you know, the, the perhaps the LAPD wouldn't, and they they get an offshore account that ties back to the US. Um, and um, and let's say a 1995 style IP address where the transaction happened is in an above modest address in the hills, and we cut to a pair of poodles padding around a house, past the entrance to the house to a swimming pool and into a kind of one of those out uh, outside offices where we find a young genius accountant on the payroll of our highly influential gangsters that we're going to meet in a bit. As he would put it only likely on the payroll, very, very likely barely is Hugh Grant at the peak of his powers. And he's the Leo gets of our movie, basically Shepson. (laughs) He's a, He's on the phone as um, as Jimmy and Joe knock on his door, barge in, and hold him at gunpoint for answers. And, uh, and Hugh gives it, the, well, what can I do for you fellows? And uh, Jimmy's like, what the fuck do you think you can do for us? And he's like, well, I was thinking some some, some tea and biscuits. <laughs> and Jimmy just goes, tea? And Willis goes, yeah, it's the shit the British scoop out there, toilet bowls. And Hugh was going, I <laughs> actually have many different flavors. And, uh, and Jimmy Cox has gone. And the incriminating info Hugh has is naturally not on his person, but on a file at his firm in the city. And the trio elect to leave uh, Hugh's house, but not before Hugh has secretly pressed a little alarm button under his desk to alert the big bads. Cucks, cut to gangster re- leader Ray Liotta. Um Hugh's compromised. I need you boys downtown. And, um, and I've put that... Um, to, to Hugh's office downtown just before the goons catch up to the trio, there's a nice scene where he's on the reception desk kind of signing in Jimmy and uh and Joe and uh and he's sort of trying to be obvious that they're not his friends but he's like, you know these, these chaps are my they're my they're my golf buddies and uh, we were just we were just about to tee off when I realized I'd left my gloves in the office and what a silly Billy I am and how we laughed and uh and Joe and Joe and uh, and Jimmy giving him nothing just pure scowl. Um, they get the floppy disk with incriminating account info. And um, and I've said that then the goons catch up um, to them at the office. There's a fracas downtown with a cool shootout culminating in a subway chase on the LA subway. I've said perhaps some limbs of villains lost in train carriage doors and certainly a wine's line at the end of it. Forget cars, forget bikes. I don't trust you with any transportation, Joe. The trio get out alive just and come to the how did the goons know where we were point and Hugh gives it a winning wince and uh, he oh. says look you know in my defence you came bar- barging into my home barging terrified poor Bert Nerney. and Ernie. and Chewie uh, just goes you live on Sesame Street and he just says my <laughs> poodles and, uh, you get the gist you get the vibes Sheppy these three I wish I had more time to just fucking oh, write, it's amazing write the three of them into playing. But um... your
1: Hugh Grant is excellent, your Tom <laughs> Sizemore. I've never seen anything like it, absolutely astonishing! Brilliant. Um, um and and by the way, your are Pollock too. Um, I, <laughs> oh, I can man. see it very clearly. <laughs>
0: um, so at this moment, in this point, Grant pretty much flips, Hugh flips and becomes a proper good boy and and and, and is with them on the team, um, to help him out. Um, Ray Marcon, our is the ringmaster, main villain. He has a twofold agenda. He wants to get revenge on Willis's killing of his dad in the first flick. Plus, see the end of Senator Williamson so he can have his own tilt at the gig. That end is planned at the LA Marathon, where the senator is due to be firing the starting gun, a gun that will be switched out for an explosive one. A key moment two-thirds into the movie Um, Willis, Wines and Grant go to the senator's office to warn him that there is a bomb plan for the marathon. The senator is in a meeting, but Sizemore is there and ushers them into the office to hear what they have to say. Anyone that has ever seen a Sizemore movie will guess the next part. Mm -hmm. He's, of course, on Ray Marconi's pro payroll too. And -hmm. it's the one who will switch the guns out. In a shocking twist, he shoots Hugh, prints the gun with uh, with Joe's uh, fingerprints, and calls security to arrest the boys. Hugh, miraculously, is shot but not dead. He's off the board here for most of the, the third act, but he will be back, rest assured, Sheppy, to pop up between the shoulders of Willis and Wyans <laughs> in all good audience for The um, Last Boy Scout 3. <laughs> um, the chief of police doesn't buy the Williams and Wylins gone rogue story for a moment. Um, you know, and, 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 although he's had to arrest them, um, and take him downtown and um, he lets that play out uh, presentationally but um but but puts it to the center's office at the pair um, behind bars um and inexplicably and in a pure 1990s LAPD police chief um, plan plan believes the only way that they can flush out everyone involved with this harebrained scheme is to play this thing out to the very end and the only two that can save the day at the marathon are our boys Jimmy and Joe and um And uh and Joe's like, marathons, I fucking hate joggers. And uh Jimmy's like, you love with vehicles, you should consider it. Seriously. And Joe says, I swear to God, we fucking nail these guys and I'll run this thing next year. So there's your jig parallel. And uh Jimmy's like, we nail these guys and I'll run this thing next year with you. So the climactic scene at the marathon, imagine the pure Scott spectacle of the hordes of runners, um and um and they avert uh Sizemore and i i put no detail on that Jane Sheppy. but at the start of life, they've size Sizemore and rather than go to prison he fires the gun himself and blows up you know so that's that's <laughs> how it so they did definitely nice. save the senator race goes ahead just like the oohs and ahs of the first one despite the size <laughs> <the laughs> Sizemore <laughs> blowing up in the starting area um and um and and at the end, you know, and I was much more interested in my crocodile dundee in LA style ending, Sheppy. Um, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but um so Senator Bubba, you know, of course, after the in the aftermath, it's like, that's twice you've saved my life, Allen Beck. I need a new security guard though. And uh, Joe's like, Not my gig anymore, Senator. But I take a bullet for you, sir. You're one of the good guys. And anyway, then we get the hospital scene with
1: Hugh. <laughs> they've,
0: they, imagine they've had fuck Hugh at the drive-through style scrape, so they are yes. proper brothers now. And then, <laughs> and Joe's like, um, "How you holding up?" And uh, and Hugh's the tea is revolting. <laughs> and Jimmy's like, "Couldn't have done it without you. You're all right." And uh, is, is there anything we can do? And Hugh just says, well, I haven't been able to take Bert and Ernie for their morning run for days. They must be bored stiff having just walkies with Miss Miggins. And Jimmy just goes, morning run. And he looks at Joe. And Joe just goes, don't even. And then we fade to black. We fade up. Several months later, Hugh is jogging in all the gear. Early morning LA. Headbands, sweatbands with Bert and Ernie trotting along next to him, the poodles. And he stops by... um, by joe's first and um and so the wife sarah is now, answers the door and uh as she just says to you thank you for the vegetarian lasagna recipe and he's like not at all it's all about layering that zucchini and joe just <laughs> says i'm bringing my gun from off screen like that he just says that won't be necessary there's really nowhere to tuck it and, uh, <laughs> and then they stop by uh, jimmy's house next and it just cuts to this. White Jimmy opens his door, looking a little more ready to run. And, uh, and, and obviously, I guess he'll have still some residual gear from his days. And uh, looking, looking sharp. And um, <laughs> God, I forgot about this. he unclips a doggy poop bag from his belt and just says to Jimmy, "Could I possibly?" And Jimmy just looks at him, and it's the opposite of the Beverly Hills Cop Cab look. And Hugh just says, Yes, of course, of course. No, I just he clips it back onto his little uh, gear at his waist. And then the trio run, trio run off down the road, bickering Willis, maybe with a call this a happy ending. for that. Uh, that's huge. Oh,
1: well, that's that's my... wonderful. You know, you're not wrong about the Park Mead ending, but not in. A Flash Gordon way, which also went the way of Park
0: yeah, in did like it. really
1: awful one. This stays true though to the essence <laughs> of what it is, and you're right, real Lethal Weapon three vibes um, in terms of tone and stuff. Oh,
0: it does switch. I,
1: I bloody love that, um, and may I say before I forget, the song at the beginning. Oh God, yes,
0: please.
1: <laughs> I want that on tape. I want that on a cassette right now because uh, that's that's great yeah. Be, yeah i
0: want to thank you man because it is i think of all the pictures we've done so far it's the one i wish i had just that little like i just wish i'd given myself more time to wallow in it because it's a lot of fun to write this kind of banter if you ask me now gun like you know gun to the head black style uh, as, as oh. i tried to tell you you know your mama's so fat gags you know i i feel like <laughs> I would request a Last Boy Scout three as well, just to have another pop at these two, because actually <laughs> yeah. it's so much fun to write that shit, isn't it? And like yeah, it, yes. I, the, the, the banter talk is it's just too much fun. It's too much fun. But, um, well, yeah.
1: Last Boy Scout three, yes, please, coming soon. It's going to be a
0: PG. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. Ah, um, uh, wonderful, wonderful,
1: Jamie. Absolutely, yes, yes. A million times, yes. Really great. Uh, by the way, one comment, really, not about either of our pictures, but something I didn't mention earlier. Black likes his uh, kind of plucky daughter sidekick, like mm. in, in Last Boy Scout, in the um, tough guys, real guys.
0: Uh, nice guys.
1: Nice guys, yes. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, she's in Mayor of East um, But yes, yeah. Yeah. Um, it's a it's a thing he came back to, which I which I like a lot.
0: And I think even the one in Lethal Weapon Two, particularly, and then a bit in Lethal Weapon, more like she's got some pluck about her too, isn't she? She's quite yeah.
1: That's but true, but she's kind of older and sexier, whereas yeah. like kind of thirteen-year-old, kind of like driving the car and being yeah, like yeah, yeah, yeah lovely. language and stuff. Yes, yes. Uh, it's great, though, yeah. And I guess the, the kid in Iron Man 3 has shades of that as well.
0: Yes, um, of course. Yeah. Nice.
1: Wonderful. Very <laughs> nice, Jimmy.
0: Um Oh, yeah,
1: but I like life, and I like <laughs> you. <laughs> and I love Joe Hallenbach. Uh really. He's he's one of my favorite.
0: He's characters. a great one. I'm so glad you thought to say that that opening line. Well, not opening line, but you know, that line in the rearview mirror is it's a stunning, stunning line, isn't it? Yeah. Um I uh hey, uh order of biz hey. Now I'm still yes. on the fence. I'm not on the fence. Well, look, I'm gonna tell you <laughs> I flirted uh with planes trains and automobiles here i'm not going to do it sorry to tease you with it but because <laughs> i was thinking oh we're coming up my time with thanksgiving but maybe i will do that for the next one spoiler alert but you mentioned <laughs> to me on messenger uh the other day that you'd rewatched something and i thought that's fascinating because i don't peg Sheppy for re-watching these but we probably do need to acknowledge this guy somehow and give do something with him um so i i would like Sheppy and austin powers movie from you if wow <laughs> wow <laughs> <laughs> I watched Member last December and it wasn't up to too much I'm not saying we have to re- replace Goldmember I'm just saying it would be nice to give Austin another hurrah of sorts you right. know so yes. um, yeah alright
1: yeah. Oh, okay oh I love it I did not see that coming uh, <laughs> how, how exciting yeah and you're right I mean yes it was a, it was a random choice that we did the first two um, like a month or two ago and yeah absolutely that's that's wonderful, Jimmy. Yes, thank you. Let's, nice. let's get our glasses out and our teeth crooked. Uh, I like it <laughs> very much. Which oh. means, uh, how do we sign off? Oh, my God.
0: The last I'm not going to jig because it doesn't make very good radio ships, to be honest. But uh, the way you jig, I think that's for the best. Radio is <laughs> the best place for it.
1: I uh, don't oh great no. <laughs> <laughs>